He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, June 19, 2021. Happy Juneteenth. Happy Father's Day. I've got an epic show that will be a gift to you. It's called Denver Streets and it focuses on Holly Street. I still live right around Holly Street, always have, but not north at 34th and Holly, Holly Square, the subject of a great book by author Julian Rubenstein, who's written The Holly, Five Bullets, One Gun, and the Struggle to Save an American Neighborhood. It's a great book. You will want to listen to it. You will want to buy it. I guarantee it. Bill Buckley, legendary chief deputy DA in Denver, 26 years. He knows the streets of Denver. He's my guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge talking about the United Bank murder 30 years ago this week. And we talk about the Denver mayoral election. Early v. Webb with both guests, Rubenstein and Buckley. Then, of course, our troubadour, Dave Gunders, delivers again with a great conversation about history and who gets to write it. Have you heard about the Alamo? Wait till you hear that discussion and then talk about bad history Peter Boyles, he gives bad history lessons day after day on Denver radio, and I call him out because I don't like bigotry. I don't like misinformation. This is a heck of a show. Happy Father's Day. Happy Juneteenth. Here's Julian Rubenstein. Ladies and gentlemen, I have been looking forward to talking to this man because I read his book. More precisely, he read me his book. I listened to it on Audible. I recommend it. It's The Holly, the author, Julian Rubenstein. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, I hope this is the first of many appearances because we can only scratch the surface of the things I have to talk about. And let's... Let's get people to read the book, too, so they'll know why I'm so excited. And let me start with the timely greeting of happy June 10th. Can you believe it? Amazing. Finally, and very quickly, apparently, um, I've talked to people who were like, wait a minute, tomorrow is now a holiday and we're supposed to be in court. And how do we do that? So, yeah, uh, it's great that they did it. And apparently they did it very quick. We are recording this on June 18th, which might be celebrated in five points, which is not the heart of your book, but nearby. The heart of your book is the holly. But we've been hearing about Juneteenth forever in Denver because Five Points has an annual celebration. But now it takes on greater prominence nationwide. And I think it's good. I'm feeling very indebted to black people for keeping Donald Trump out of office. Uh, So I I, I just think it's a beautiful thing uh, to celebrate. I still remember that one um, uh, campaign event that that Trump had. It used to get played sometimes where 
he points over and there's literally one black person there. And he said, look at, he says, look at my African-American, <laughs> the singular right. one who was standing there. But yes, uh, I, I don't think they uh, helped his chances. Well, there are more. Herschel Walker, Ben Carson, I could go on, but no, there there's, were, always, no, there, there's always people. But thank God for Stacey Abrams and people coming out in big numbers. And that's part of your book, too, politics. I love it, especially centered on my hometown, Denver, Colorado. I went to Denver Public Schools, proud graduate of George Washington High School, and I was a Denver DA for 16 years in that office yeah. as a frontline prosecutor. So I love Denver. You grew up here, but not in Denver. You went to Cherry Creek. And yeah. I sense more of a Denver detachment for you. Um, you know, first of all, it's funny how you we, we start out, and you're totally right, by the way, five points, even though it's not the uh, very title of the book or the dead center of the book. But as you know, it's kind of one of the two main poles in the book, but we'll get to that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, perhaps, I don't know if, if it was, uh, all I can say is this. I mean, uh, of course, there's uh, all kinds of reactions. I've had uh, many people thanking me. Uh, day by day, I'm getting, you know, calls, uh, uh, people thanking me for finally telling this story. Sometimes it takes someone perhaps not from there. I'm, yes, I grew up, I, I, I consider that I grew up more or less in Denver. Yes, it was South Denver. I did not grow up in Northeast Denver, but perhaps had I done so, maybe I wouldn't have been so free from allegiances to be able to tell a story like this. Um, I did try to come in and of course be fair and be honest. Um, but I, I'm not sure what you mean by uh, well, the you kind of you you're younger than me, but you refer to Denver as a bit of a cow town in the '80s, and I was prosecuting then, and I don't, I think we were well past being a cow town then, but maybe that's oh. just my romanticizing of Denver, and uh, you. You know, your audience is obviously national, and you get into a lot of national topics. It's beautiful the way you blend everything. But I'm just saying, when you were growing up, did you come downtown a lot? Did you ever, did your dad play ball at Sonny Lawson Park, 23rd Walton? <laughs> uh, I mean, well, for years all, I've been referred, doing, yeah, go ahead. I thought I referred to Denver as a cow town in the 70s, that that's how I felt it was when I was growing up. I am 52 now, so... I'd have to double check it. I thought I was referring to the 70s. But in any case, um, did I come down? Well, you know, the one thing I do mention that that in the in the book, which is to me of particular note, was that the one thing I place I, I certainly had not been myself was anywhere in Northeast Park Hill or Holly Square, which is the center of the book. And the thing that I did remember about it growing up was, of course, first of all, that we would pass by this neighborhood when we went down Monaco to the old airport. Um, which was then Stapleton, as those who've lived here a long time know. Uh, at this point, I guess it was, uh, what was it? Uh, now I'm forgetting which year they moved it, 2004? Uh, uh, for the airport and all that. And yeah, like, you're bringing back memories for me. Because yeah. every Sunday morning, earlier than I wanted to wake up as a teenager, I'd be in the passenger seat going down Monaco Parkway, north to Park Hill Golf Course. We'd turn on 34th drive by the holly, drive by the dahlia. My dad would point out who owned the real estate. But along Monaco at that hour in the morning in the summertime, like right now, you are on a parkway with big trees and the sun is coming in and out, in and out, hitting your head, waking you up so you can go play 18 with your old man. 
It was great. I definitely remember those beautiful big trees and also how you would kind of ride up and down, you know, on the, uh, if you're in the right lane, I suppose, from the, the way the pavement was. You would just yes. kind of, but that's, kind of that's especially acute on 18th headed toward downtown. You get in one lane, you feel like you're on a little roller coaster at Lakeside or Elitches. But yeah. we both go back. I guess I was in high school in the 70s, still not quite a cow town. I'm always interested in the way Denver's portrayed to a larger audience. And you're not just going for a Colorado audience, this is a big deal. The New York Times gave you beautiful coverage. How big is this book? And tell us why, or t- I understand why, but tell everybody why you think this has broader implications than just Denver. So when I got into the story, I mean, just to tell a bit about it, of course, at the center of the story is this shooting that takes place in, that did take place in in uh, Holly Square in 2013, involving Terrence Roberts, then an anti-gang activist, but who had previously been a blood gang member and not just any gang member either. He was, you know, a high level gang leader of that, of that gang. And he had also been a third generation resident of the community. When I first read about this story, that shooting itself was in the New York times. And it was talked about not only the shooting, but a little bit about the neighborhood, which I was trying to, you know, remember what was my experience there. And interestingly at the time, so I'd, you know, grown up in Denver, as you said, I went to Creek, and then I ended up moving to, I was, I lived in New York much of my adult life. Um, and I'd never, I'd been a journalist my whole career. I'd never done a story in Denver. And so I was, you know, particularly interested, curious about this, uh, this particular story because it automatically seemed to have a lot of interesting aspects to it that were kind of part of this national conversation, both about race, about gun violence and about um, how to stop it. Cause here you have a guy who used to be part of it then became an anti-gang activist. Now he's the one holding the gun. But beyond that, what also really interested me, and I think you saw is probably, you know, I think is a, a, a real theme throughout the book, is urban development and or sometimes called gentrification. And what did intrigue me right at the time that I got interested in it, came out to Denver, stayed with my mom, started talking to people about it, was that at the time of this shooting, the Holly Square itself was part of this big redevelopment project. And Terrence Roberts, the shooter in this case, was the de facto community rep of this project. And he was involved not only on the uh, redevelopment side, but he was also involved in the anti-gang work. And this shooting happens kind of right as all this stuff is coming to fruition he he was actually supposed to move into the new boys and girls club that was developed there um that that's very night of the shooting so all of these factors were things that to me were part of a national conversation already and a national curiosity about like how does this how does this stuff work what are the problems with it how can it best work and i thought the more i started meeting people also and there were a number of other factors, the characters and the actual, you know, as the story started to unfold, all of which said to me that this is a story of national significance. And here's what I know about you. You went to Cherry Creek High School. I bet you got good grades because you are a beautiful writer. You are a wonderful storyteller. And you had that success that allowed you to go to the biggest of big cities, New York. No wonder you think Denver's kind of smaller, maybe Cowtownish Compared to New York, everything is. But here's the thing. 
When you came back, did you have a contract to do this? Was it on spec? How does that work in the world of being a big-time author? So, and again, first of all, I definitely by that time did not think Denver was a cow town in Nordo. I think so now. It's obviously a boom town, um, and which was also quite interesting how that was playing into this story and the the not just the urban development, but the booming real estate and the population change and all that was happening in Denver. But what happened was, um, yeah, I mean, I have been a journalist with a less conventional career in journalism in that. I really didn't want to. I did so. I worked at the Washington Post. My very first job, I was an agate clerk. <laughs> I was. I started out. I was typesetting the box scores, uh, but then had a chance to. A lot of they start people out that way who they think you know might have some promise because they always know they they're going to need an extra hand here or there, and they'll throw you some stories. Then went on to Sports Illustrated. I was there for three years, and I realized you know what I, I just don't think I want to write sports all my life and. I went freelance and I've been freelance ever since. And there's good and bad sides to that. The upside is that you're your own boss and you cho- choose what you want to do. The downside of it is that it's, uh, you know, it can be really dicey in terms of how you can um, support yourself. So in this case, I went out, you know, it didn't cost me much. I needed to buy a plane ticket. That's about it. I flew home, uh, borrowed my mom's car, drove around, <laughs> you know, um, stayed with her, met people, uh, met Terrence. And I was trying to think about what, so I really was very interested in the story. I thought that um, things that I was hearing from Terrence and what he represented, even sort of symbolically as a black man in America today, what he'd been through, his life story uh, and trajectory, and uh, and other people that I was meeting who were significant characters in the book, some of whom you know, Greg. Right, the way, but you know, I've never sure met, we'll to my knowledge, I've never met Terrence Roberts, who is at the heart of your book, and I don't want to give too much away, but you meet him at an IHOP. I think I know which one. Was it the one out yeah. south in uh, Arapahoe yeah, County? Uh, no, this was, um, and I think I can say it now. At the time, he didn't. He was actually literally said, and I later came to believe that he was really trying to not let anyone know where he was for safety concerns. So it was the one right off of uh, you, and probably people know that, like, so I twenty five in Colorado Boulevard, just south of I twenty five on Colorado Boulevard on the west side of the street. There's like an IHOP in like a kind of shopping no, I th- area. I think it, I think it was. Uh... No, that's where it was. I remember. I, no, I, I know, but, but I think oh. <laughs> uh, COVID did it in. So oh, okay. it's a, perhaps it did. I, that could be true. Right. I don't know. Right. Um, so, Near yeah. Crown Burger and all of that. I, I think so. There's like a there's like a Mike's camera, I think, over there. Sure. And, you know, anyway, it was over there. Right. Um, but, but, but the bottom line is that uh, and I've encountered special people. You might be one of them, Julian. I don't know. But somebody who's. Very captivating. And throughout the book, you meet with him so many times. And he seems like a natural leader with a charisma and an energy that's captivating. So you became kind of enamored of the guy. Am I right? Uh, yes. And by the way, I'll loop back into to, to just so what happened. Like, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to answer that. But basically, so I, I, I was very interested in him. And so I started thinking, what is this? Is it a, is it a book? Is it a magazine story? Could eventually, I, I ended up, by the way, filming some stuff for a documentary that I'm still in process on. But I basically ultimately realized that I couldn't, even a magazine story, this story, as you've seen, it's very, 
nuanced, complex, and big. And I was like, I, I don't even think I could do this in a magazine. So I did ultimately write a book proposal um, to, to, to get to your last question. And I, and I was able to um, get a book contract. Uh, but I did not have one at first. I kind of sent myself on a couple of trips out to Denver before I uh, did that. But then and, and to get to your uh, question about Terrence, absolutely. I mean, he is uh, a very captivating person. I didn't know what I believed about what he was saying, but I knew that it was definitely worth looking into. And it was very what was particularly interesting, a couple of things. One was that how personal everything about this story was the guy he shot that day at this peace rally he'd grown up with his father ice alexander as he was known who's a legend an original park hill blood an og uh so to speak who um you know he'd known since childhood grew up right around the corner from him um and he also was talking about things that were very political in nature in terms of that he believed he had been attacked on the day in question because that because of people who were wanting to push him out, wanted his position, didn't want his, him involved over there and what was going on. And like I said, I really didn't know what to think, but I thought that it was worth looking further into. I love the way you tell this story. You open with this shooting. So we're not giving much away to say that uh, Terrence shoots a guy named Munch. I forget his real name, but he is... Uh, Hassan Jones. Hassan, Hassan Jones. Jones, right. And he... Uh, as a, a gang member uh, who's yeah. upset mm-hmm. about Terrence uh, breaking with the gang and uh, the argument is self-defense. He and his buddies were going to beat him down and he fired preemptively, but then he stood over him and apparently fired another shot, dropped a knife on the guy. And uh, I won't give away how the trial ends because that's the climax. And you know what? Even though I follow this stuff and I did it for a living, there was still suspense for me. This is a good suspenseful book, and you made a lot of decisions in storytelling, lawyers, and we're not giving it away because it's been in publications. Your brother's the elected DA in Mesa County. That's cool. I've had him in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. You understand storytelling, and you made a lot of decisions And I listened to your book, and the way this story was told online was captivating and entertaining to me because you used different voices. Tell us all the great decisions you made. I want people to buy your audio book because I think they'll get more out of it. Well, and do you mean in your question specifically decisions in the audio book or in the the, the book in general? Well, let's just start with the audio book because I want people to get excited about it and then Tell us how you decided to drop in the middle, kind of like Rachel Maddow, and then circle back around. So, so basically, my my first book, I, which was called Ballad of the Whiskey Robber, it's also a nonfiction book. I came out, by the way, seventeen years ago. I have a very high bar for doing a book. It takes a lot of damn work, and I, um, I, I, I finally, in with this one, realized I'm taking the plunge again. And it was, by the way, seven years I spent on this. Uh, so when it came time to do the audiobook, I was glad that my publisher uh, wanted to, by the way, because there's not a guarantee. They usually, if they're pretty sure it's going to, you know, do well or they're, they're going to put something behind it, they're going to do it. Because, of course, nowadays, a lot of people like the audiobook. So uh, when, when I got that news, I said, great, I have a couple of ideas. Um, one of them, which was just a little idea that I had from the last one, was – I said, you know, what if I get Terrence to introduce it? It's just a small thing, but I kind of like it because I did it in my first book 
the 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 uh, protagonist of that book was a uh, was was actually still in prison in Hungary. <laughs> I took a recorder in and got him to uh, introduce the book. Now that book had multiple characters um, involved, and I was kind of lucky because a bunch of people that I knew I was still living in New York basically agreed to do it for free. In this case, on the budget we had, we did we were able to use two voices, but the challenge we had at first first they came to me and said, um, well, you know, what if we're going to get this actor to read the book? What about that? And I said, well, that's a good idea, but there are sections in the book where I'm sort of speaking in the first person and discussing, you know, even things such as being a white man and doing the book, you know, here and there, I, I, I place myself in the book to give some context. And I said, it would be kind of weird if the, cause they were going to get this African-American voice actor. And I said, so how do we do that? And they said, well, you know what, then what? If, and I said, by the way, I read the, the narration on my last book. Maybe I could do it. And they said, great, you know what you should do. It. And I said, well, there's one other challenge with that, which is that, there are some characters in this book that use words that a white man like me could be quite, you know, under the under the gun, so to speak, or, or under the spotlight for saying the N-word and things like that. So what about that? And they said, you know, that's a good point. Why don't we have you both do it? And I said, that's exactly what I think, because we can have the African-American actor do the voices and do the characters, and I can be the narrator. So we kind of do it like that, like a mix. And um, I said to you, Craig, I said, well, I'm glad. I've heard, actually, some good feedback from people, but you know, you read the thing, it took a week. <laughs> and under COVID, they had, you know, I, I didn't even go to a studio. I was like, really, I'm trying to do it at home. We had to stop for lawnmowers <laughs> and, and helicopters and things like that. But, uh, you know, it was it was it was a long week of recording. And um, I didn't I haven't still personally listened to it myself. So I'm glad it's come together. I, I listened uh, to every word. And you are a fantastic narrator. Not everybody. Uh, possesses that gift but you do well thank you what what did you do at cherry creek high were you uh excelling at creative writing back then and because uh, I, I had I, a kid who just graduated there i want to know what you did because you well, are a terrific thing, writer i have to say that like in high school i always look back and the one thing is i wish i took it a little more seriously i had like pretty good grades but it, i was one of those kids who it, you know the goal for me was like how can i get away with doing as little as possible and still get an A or, you know, a B here or there. I just, you know, I guess I, I was smart enough to, to, to get by with that, but I, I didn't put in a lot of effort. I'm not proud of that. And whoever, any kids listening, don't take my, <laughs> that was, it didn't, it doesn't help you later. Oh, so wow. I didn't really get serious about, um, uh, uh, writing and that kind of stuff till college and graduate school. When I did end up studying journalism and, and really um, realizing that that's what I wanted to do. So tell us uh, about your storytelling decisions. I mean, it, it you are the heart of the book, you and Terrence, because there you are in your New York East Coast lifestyle. You read about your hometown. You get in touch with Terrence. That was the key. He got back to you on email. And the thing about this guy who is sometimes down and out toward the end of the book, well, I'm not going to give that away, but he always has technology such that he can be texted or emailed or go on Facebook. I had no idea how relevant Facebook was to all of this, but tell your yeah. story. Entice people with uh, how technology figures in this. Well, the first thing I'd say about in terms of how I decided to tell the story, the big decision was that, you know, first I approached the story and I've written some, you know, even my first book, I think I mentioned you, we were chatting the other day. It's, it's a story of this, uh, of a bank robber basically who became a folk hero. 
in post-communist Eastern Europe in the the nineties, basically. Um, but, and, and so, and I've done some other stories about like crime stories. Um, I never considered myself a crime writer, so to speak, but they're what I do like about crime criminals is, is, is the, the real kind of like, um, the, the stakes, the stakes involved and the human drama and the psychology and all of that. And of course I had a lot of that here, but the big decision. So it was sort of like a, it, it was sort of a crime story, but it wasn't a traditional who done it. It was like a, why done it? We know who shot this guy. Why did he do it? And what and, the surprise, and, and what's going to be done about it and, and what will happen. And, and, and what are the consequences not for, for everyone and for the community? But what was interesting and the biggest decision for me was that I and what made it take so long, too, was that I realized that in order to really answer the question of why Terrence Roberts shot Hassan Jones at his own peace rally, I had to actually go back 50, 60 years and kind of tell the story of this neighborhood, which is why the book is called The Holly. So that was the number one standout decision about like what, what decisions when I think about the decisions I made in telling the story. I didn't know that I was going to start this book. Like you said, it opens with the shooting. Then he's chapter one, 1955. You're in 1955. That's the the year I was born. But you actually (laughs) go much further back because you touch on the Klan 100 years ago in Denver, controlling the governor and the mayor's office, Democrat and a Republican. So I love that part. And by the way, on the various voices, I'd say the first chapter you're saying – as a listener, what's going on here? And then by chapter two, you say, oh, now I get it. And by chapter okay. three, you're enjoying it. And by chapter four, it's like part of the family. So it's wonderful because you, Terrence is uh, very fond of the N-word, which is okay out of his, his mouth, but not out of yours. But the actor exactly. makes a workout. And Yet he does uh, all the quotations. So that's cool. I like the way you did it. You made great choices. And I recommend the audio recording. I just wonder if I'm missing out on pictures. Maybe you could send me a yep. buck if I am. Right. What okay, are the pictures sure, show? Well, because, yeah, I was, I, I really like, and I had uh, this conversation with my editor late in the game. I, he was like, well, maybe we don't need a, a photo section. I was like, come on, everyone loves a photo section. And there are uh, people I remember in my, first book they're like oh, i can't even believe it when i saw these photos that's when i knew it was really real like and and uh, but anyway so yeah there's in, if you buy the book and actually you know what with the ebook i wonder i, I haven't even i gotta look because of course there's also an ebook you can get if, for those people who like that and actually not really sure if the photos are in there i have to check but yeah, I can, a I can, i'll buy a book i'll go and or i'll definitely go look at the pictures i'll probably buy one and maybe if we meet in person you'll autograph it because i think there's a special book i want people to write it and you talk about history and i lived through a lot of this history do you know what was going on 30 years ago today in denver relevant in your book let me think it's 2021 so that would be 91 yeah a uh, ninety-one is the May, what, what? Oh, was that when uh, Wellington Webb was elected? It had beat my boss, Norm Early, and uh, the three days before there had been the Father's Day massacre, which we talk about during this podcast. Bill Buckley prosecuted that quadruple homicide. That that started Denver on the road toward the summer of violence. I got very involved in that, but wow, yeah, Webb v. Early, uh, Norm's. 
sort of a part of the book, but more so Wellington Webb. He's a big part of your book. He's a big part of Northeast Denver. He went to Manuel yep. High. Yep, and 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 so many of the luminaries in the book and in Northeast Denver, of course, went to Manuel. I was amazed. Um, a couple of my good friends went there as well, and I never knew somebody. Even guys like uh, Michael Asbury, the founder of Denver's Crips, mm-hmm. went to Manuel. Terrence's father went to Manuel. Didn't graduate. In fact, was illiterate until in a, in a jail he learned to read a Bible. Um, but so yes, I mean, uh, you know, I told I, exactly. So I tell that story starting from Terrence's grandmother basically escaping virtual servitude in an Arkansas cotton plantation getting to Denver, bringing her whole family eventually to Denver. And um, she ends up being one of the first African-Americans allowed to live in Northeast uh, Northeast Park Hill in 1960 when they opened that up for uh, blacks being allowed to live there because Five Points was just becoming overcrowded and they needed somewhere else. And they were trying to integrate Denver, of course. And um, that so he and then Terrence Terrence was born there in 1976 um, and of course, uh, Wellington Webb, the sneaker campaign, um, uh, you know, the, the, the tall and first African-American mayor of Denver was huge. The, the MLK day after that, of course, you had a huge, uh, fracas involving, uh, the, the, some of these, uh, neo-Nazi mm-hmm. groups, um, in reaction to it. Um, and he served, uh, Three terms, right? Three. Is he did. Right? And he was a powerful yeah. mayor, and he ran this town. He ran the Democrat Democratic Party, which is running Denver. There really isn't much Republican influence. He knew how was, to take the wheels of power and use it. You chronicle his next election against Mary DeGroote in 95. I yep. was turning 40, wondering about my future, and I ran against Bill Ritter in 1996, not a part of your book. That's okay. There are more books to write. But <laughs> I, there were always these allegations. Was there a hanky-panky at the airport? Is Wellington Webb? Yeah. Uh, what are his monetary interests? Who are his buddies? How are they profiting? And that kind of runs through your whole book too, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I try to follow the money to whatever degree I can and point out certain things. Ultimately, mostly I try to do that related to sort of uh, urban development of the African-American neighborhoods, as well as police and uh, law enforcement funding for efforts in those neighborhoods. And one of the good techniques of an investigative journalist, I suppose that's a good title for you, right? Investigative journalist? Sure. You uh, wanted to follow the money. Tell us what efforts you made and where you got frustrated because some records were not <laughs> yeah. provided. That's true. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, of course, uh, there's a number of different ways to do that. Um, the first way you start, of course, is just every type of Google search you can imagine and try. And, you know, sometimes that turns up some good stuff as well as interviewing uh, people who might tell you, by the way, so there was this one thing and then you know what, what to look for. Um, anything with nonprofits, of course, they have to file their uh, is it the 990 or the, I, can't, I can't remember which form they, they, they file. So so online or through um uh there's different services but you can get the the mandatory tax filings for nonprofits that'll show uh both their their funding their funders that who who's getting what salary 
Um, and then also public records are supposed to be, as I think you're pointing out, um, I know what you're getting at, which is that the any government uh, funding, whether federal, city, state, it, that's, you know, the, this is by law, uh, it should be public. And I actually did not get the, interestingly, and I thought it was very telling, I, I, actually, I found this thing, you'd like this, in 2015, I, I would have put this in the book if I'd come across it earlier but there was a some kind of a transparency report on colorado that was done in in 2015 the state overall scored a d plus but in public accountability and records public records they scored an f um and uh, so they're 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 not transparent and sure enough the city i tried a couple different times to get the budgets for the anti-gang effort and they wouldn't give them I, I don't think there's real penalty uh, there's not a real penalty for non-compliance. That's part of the problem. But yeah, uh, the the key is that you've identified that, that massive amounts of money came flowing into law enforcement. Yeah, and when you talk about massive amounts of money, the richest guy in Colorado, one of the richest guys in America, Philip Anschutz, that family is a big part of your book, and. He certainly has a lot of money, and some of it has been sprinkled on Northeast Denver. Definitely, and that was sort of surprising. Um, he ultimately became the biggest. I guess I think he, we would say he's still the biggest stakeholder, believe it or not, in the historic Holly Square, which you know is really one of the most important sites in African American history in Denver. It was in 1968, the place where a police shooting tipped the civil rights movement into protests, demands, and, you know, it was the peak of it. And and um, and then over the years, and this is what was so fascinating to me about this specific place where, the, where Terrence shot Hassan as well, and which was being redeveloped, but over the years then, you know, fell into some of the uh, similar social ills we hear about in African-American neighborhoods, you know, poverty, unemployment, um, uh, and then we see coming drugs, uh, guns, uh, violence, and eventually gangs in the Holly Shopping Center, which used to be in the center of Holly Square, became, sure enough, the sort of symbolic headquarters of Denver's first Bloods gang. But in, but in 2008, it was burned to the ground by the Crips. And that incident, which w- was what sort of spurred this uh, multi-year effort eventually to redevelop Holly Square put this Boys and Girls Club in and all that. And it was Philip Anschutz, whose family foundation gave $5 million to build this club. And that made them the biggest stakeholder in the redevelopment of Holly Square. And, you know, it was, I guess, unexpected to to, to have them be the, the main players over there. Right. And a lot of people have been trying to figure out, well, what are Phil Anschutz's politics, really? Um, I'm sure Terrence kind of struggled with that, but... I don't want to give away too much of the book, but they're not exactly on the same page as Terrence. And now that I look at Phil Anschutz and the Gazette and the other media entities he owns, it's it's apparent to me that in the culture war and the, really the, the, the Trump war, he's decided to be on the Trump side, which to me is disappointing. As a Colorado guy, I've been following Phil Anschutz for a while. I think I recall that his wife, Nancy, gave me money when I ran for DA, which I appreciate. And I didn't know if they were really conservative or I knew they weren't super liberal, but 
Your book does a great job fleshing it out. Reminded me he's from Russell, Kansas. Bob Dole's from Russell, Kansas. I'm yep. so old that when I ran for DA, you know who was running for president? Bob Dole against Bill Clinton. <laughs> yep. Anyway, um, the other character who I know very well is Reverend Leon Kelly. And you describe okay. him beautifully because he's a memorable character with one of the deepest voices you will ever yep. encounter. Totally. And he has a serious presence, although he can light up a room with his smile. I've played a lot of basketball against him because we're similarly 6'5", or we were. And he's like a block of granite. It's hard to move him and a very competitive person. So I know Rev Kelly, played a lot of hoop with him, against him. What did you make of Rev Kelly? You encountered him quite a bit, and he is a big part of your book. He is, to me, a very complicated character. And um, I think I certainly tried to portray him that way in the book. Um, he's someone that, you know, I, look, with one thing I have to say is with everything that ended up happening in this book, it was so unexpected. I I remember at the beginning thinking, oh, it's going to be this, because basically Terrence started telling me things about Reverend Kelly that I, I, I honestly just didn't believe. I didn't, I didn't agree with, I didn't understand. He, he, he kept saying that Reverend Kelly was not his mentor, but I literally could not find a single newspaper or, or any print article that had ever been done mentioning Terrence that didn't say that Rev was his mentor. Uh, so because of the sway Reverend Kelly had, particularly with the media, he was able to often get his view into the media about things that were going on and it didn't always jibe with other things that I was finding um, on my own reporting. So, I mean, he did become someone who was contradictory at times and uh, very, very complicated, I guess I would say, and, and without giving anything away. Um, but you know, but, but also, along the way, it, it, did people know, hey, uh, this Julian Rubenstein, and you're introduced, you're writing a book, and are people trying to spin you so they can come out great in your book? That's what I would probably do. Without a doubt, that is something that my antenna are always up for, right? I mean, anytime that I'm working on something, you're always trying to think about what is this person's personal angle or what, who are they interested in? What are their allegiances? What are they hoping to kind of steer me toward or away from? So that, of course, I'm, I'm like always working on that, which is one thing, one reason why I always, you know, getting back to the sort of unconventional type of journalism that, that, that I'd like to do. And it's unconventional in terms of that I like to spend a long, long time on stories. I spent four years on my first book. This is seven years. I spend close to a year often on a magazine story. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's not very great for, um, <laughs> for my salary, uh, but it's how I sort of am only interested in doing it. Right, but, 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 I, but the, yeah. the benefit of it is they see you month after month, year after year. Yeah. They know you're not fly by night. You become part of the scenery. You become sort of accepted. Oh, there's Julian. He's the yeah. writer. Yeah, I, I definitely, that definitely happened. And I also was able to sort of fly under the radar, though, too, in a way, because I wasn't kind of like, um, I wasn't making waves, though, at the time. I wasn't, I was just kind of there and like taking things in. 
that's what I fly on the wall as much as I could be, you know? And so I would just either um, witness things or in terms of the case of Reverend Kelly, often, I mean, to some degree, he revealed things himself in, in the way he spoke to me. And I think it was partly sometimes I don't know that he realized that I sort of was quite aware of as much as I was aware of. Like it felt like with a lot of people I dealt with the Denver media, of course, hadn't really, no one had really worked on a sort of really long in-depth reported piece like this before. So if you're just looking for a couple of sound bites from Rev, you call him up or you get him or whatever, and he might say something, you're kind of like, what does that mean? You don't know or whatever, but I was taking it in, taking it in, taking it in. And eventually, you know, he was saying some things that were quite revealing to me, perhaps not meaning so. Right. No, and, and some of it, the most traumatic scene happens in a public forum. I don't want to give it away, but I've been in meetings like that. I don't think I was at that one. But I will mm, tell you mm, that the yeah. guy I know most in your book is Henry Cooper. I played a lot of hoop yeah. with Rev Kelly, but just a ton more with Henry Cooper, who was my teammate for well over a decade on a tremendous Denver DA's team. Yeah. Not just a basketball teammate. He played at East. I played at GW. He's a little younger than me. But gosh, he was a good basketball player. And you bring out the friendship between him and Rev Kelly. Well, Henry Cooper and I tried cases together. And I think the world of him, Coop not only had that same kind of relationship with Rev Kelly from hoops, he had it from uh, working in the court together. And I'm glad you didn't portray Henry negatively but uh how did you feel about him you said you talked to prosecutors would he talk to you uh, i i can kind of picture the relationship knowing him and starting to get to know you but what did you think of the prosecutors so you know it's really interesting and i um one thing i really appreciated about henry cooper he'll really he'll remember this it i tried to get this into the book actually in the book by the way at first my first draft was like 550 pages I had it's the the final book is like 360. So I really had it and this came out, but I really appreciated it because Henry, I'm sure, was not happy that I was there scrutinizing everything in this very sensitive and complicated case. But there was a time and it was during the Hassan Jones trial, if I'm not mistaken, which is also in the book. There's so many twists in this story, as, as you've seen. Right. Um, at one, so Hassan Jones, we should mention, didn't get killed that day. He was paralyzed. And he goes on to commit some other crimes or allegedly commit some other crimes um, and even goes to trial. And I'm sitting in the he courtroom one day. He commits these crimes from his wheelchair. Yes, yes. Right, because yep. he it's not like when Terrence shot him that it didn't do some damage. It paralyzed the man. Yeah, paralyzed him from the waist down. Right. Uh, um, and um, so I'm sitting there in this Hassan Jones trial one day, and there's this bailiff, I guess, who's a sheriff comes over a redheaded guy. It really ticked me off, but I'm sitting there. I guess I, I guess I had my laptop in there, which is maybe technically you're not supposed to or something. This guy, oh my God, he, I thought he was going to punch me or something. He comes over. He's, I'm in the courtroom just sitting there just with a laptop and he come, he's trying to get me out of there or trying to literally just about pulling me out of my chair. Who comes over, but Henry Cooper and vouches for me. Cause he, that's right. The guy says, 
who are you or something? And I said, I, I guess I said my name and I, and I said, I'm a reporter. He's like, who are you with? And I said, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a freelance, I'm freelance. I'm on my own. Get out, get out. And he's trying to get me to come out. And it was Cooper who came over and said, no, 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 leave this guy alone. And I really appreciated it because the guy was, I mean, I was just there trying to do my job and I'm, I mean, it's a public, as we know, court is public. Um, I was just taking notes on a laptop. That, that's, that's, that's the coop I know. He's got and perspective, so he, yeah. right? And he's a good man, and uh, he's raised a beautiful family. So he's my teammate. I'm glad that he reacted that way. And he, he's had a lot of experiences in that office and had to roll with the punches. And as you describe, these were some challenging cases. This was a tough one. And the one thing that you probably saw, I wonder how, what you thought of it, because what I really found fascinating was that sure enough, it comes out in open court, not with the jury there, but in the arguments about whether or not Rev can be called as an expert witness and if he's too close to Cooper and if, and what he knows about the case becomes very, very central, right? It, it, even without the jury there, right. there's this big question. And I, it was so interesting because Cooper then starting to probably, I don't know if it's the first time or not, I didn't say, but I know that, that Cooper's had Rev on as his witness, as an expert witness. But now here he is in this case, trying to bar him from testifying as an expert because he's worried that Rev's going to, you know, maybe hurt the case because of what he knows, and which becomes very, very central and quite interesting uh, in this whole drama. And so that, you know, played out. And, um, but I'm glad you, you know, felt that, uh, cause I didn't really know how uh, Cooper, you know, came out or didn't like when you, and when you, cause when you talk about this, remember, I don't. I didn't write the book trying to make anyone look bad. Honestly, I just tried to tell the story. I think some people looked bad, and so the story might make them look bad, but not because I tried to make them look bad. That's when I'm doing it. That's my process. So I thought it was interesting that that played out with Cooper and Rev. Normally, the friends who are working together often on cases, and Rev being the expert witness. But in this case, Rev posed a potential threat to the prosecution because he had information that might help Terrence's side. I am kicking myself that I was not in that courtroom. And yet that's why I enjoyed the book so much. Another guy who came off well, who I have a lot of respect for, I've done trials in front of him, Judge Brian Whitney. He seems to be the judge handling all these cases. And I think he has the perfect demeanor to uh, get along with situations like that. Yeah. I mean, one thing that was interesting about Whitney, and you probably saw it in that in that one section, but I, I begin one of the chapters there with like something like, you know, two weeks later, Hassan Jones went to went to trial facing the exact same charges as Terrence in the same courtroom with the same judge. Right. <laughs> so you had this parallel track of Terrence and Hassan going to trial on the same charges Hassan had for a drive-by shooting. Uh, so yeah. And Whitney, um, I didn't get to know him. He, uh, uh, did, uh, make a ruling actually in our favor to allow us to film the trial, which we did. Um, we had to, of course, by law share that with the Denver media and they were able to broadcast it as well. Um, but overall I did not get a, a particular sense of Whitney, uh, to be honest, he was relatively sort of straightforward and just, you know, behind the bench. I didn't, I did not uh, talk to him. That, that's the damn part of the new courthouse. You know, back in the day we were in the city and county building, you could go into chambers, there were hallways. Now it's all about security. These judges live behind closed doors. 
But you know what? Instead of cursing the way it is, I'm grateful that I got to work back in the day when things were easier. Didn't even have security. But what I loved about your book, and let's let's have everybody either buy the book or listen to it on audio and have you back because I want to talk about the trial. I want to talk about the aftermath. But here's what I think is really cool. And I was a prosecutor of a lot of gang crimes. I was not in the gang unit, but being a homicide prosecutor, uh, my world intersected and Tom Clinton from the gang unit or Henry Cooper, I would do those cases. But I didn't know all the history. And when I hear about Tupac and Biggie and those murders, you do a beautiful job explaining it and how it's all connected. I was right there when L.A. gangs started to come to Denver, and it's like, what the hell's going on? But you you do a beautiful job of talking about Tupac and Biggie, and have you seen the recent stuff about Biggie and the contention that uh, he was gunned down with cooperation of LAPD? I did see something about that, and I it had been rumored you know, for a while. There's All these things are going to be potentially hard to prove, but... Yeah, I mean, I believe that um, that Biggie, because uh, he's the one who had some. Uh, did he have police that were working for him as security? Or that you know, was also I, I, sure. I don't want to but, but, but the thing should is, give. you describe the gang affiliations, and here's the problem. And when I prosecuted these murder cases. The Denver Post and Rocky Mountain News were careful not to call the killers Crips or Bloods. It was an agreement that they were not going to get publicity for doing violent things. We're going to keep that down. And I think on a, a national level, that was true as well. And the average person could not tell you whether Tupac was a Blood or Piggy was a Crip or vice versa. It's hard for most people to retain that information, but in the main, it's not provided. It was amazing to me, the whole Tupac and Biggie thing, and obviously it's gotten tons of, uh, uh, I guess, publicity in the last few years in different kinds of movies, and a recent one, of course, about Biggie. But uh, what was so interesting to me was how these two guys came up and they end up, these sort of proxies in this war, they ended up being enveloped by this war that they sort of sung about rapped about um and then they each are killed in drive-by shootings you know tupac for those who who don't know anyway ultimately became really the most famous ever uh blood affiliated uh personality um and he didn't start he was never officially a blood biggie was never officially a crip but they became a quote-unquote affiliated um because of various things i mean tupac basically when he was in jail kind of (laughs) did almost a deal with the devil where Suge Knight, who was a big time blood out in Compton, um, offered to get him out, pay a couple million dollars in whatever, you know, security to get him out of jail, awaiting an appeal, you know, just got him onto his record label. And then, you know, he sure enough was soon after that rapping in some sort of code language that clearly affiliated him with bloods. Um, And on the East Coast, you had uh, Biggie who was along with uh, Sean Puffy Combs, who had Crip-affiliated people protecting them. And anyway, so I went into, I actually had, that's another part of the book that I had a lot more on because I thought it was just so fascinating, but I had to trim it down to 
you know, what it ended up becoming. But I thought it was interesting, both because they were icons for these gang members, including Terrence, um, who, you know, because of Tupac's stature and being a blood, he was a huge fan. Um, and uh, because of what happened to them was just so symbolic. Right, and then plays out on the day in question. Why not just get in the car and leave? That's yep. how Tupac and Biggie got it. Exactly. Anyway, we won't ruin the trial, but I do want to talk about what's going on in the world right now before I let you go, because it is Juneteenth, and uh, I worry about America. I Sometimes I think the next generation's going to be a lot better, but... To me, Trump unleashed a lot of racism. Maybe it was just beneath the surface. And I'm worried that too many police are afflicted with Trumpism, and with Trumpism comes some racism. And these are all the underlying simmering issues that have been going on for a long time. But you get what I'm driving at, Julian. You're a smart guy. Tell everybody your conclusions and how the the book helps elucidate that? Well, I mean, I guess, of course, I would say that one of the things that is sort of, in a way, I guess, a finding of the book is like problems that are result from structural racism, I suppose. When you have communities of color, in this case, you know, I it's, it's African-American commu- gang communities that are the center of the book. And these are communities that, of course, do make up like the bulk of, you know, things that happen in the, in the criminal justice industrial complex, so to speak, whether it's the bodies that fill the prisons, whether it's the shootings that gain, get the police funding uh, to keep flowing um, the, in, in, in what could be looked at like an urban war industrial complex. I mean, if you don't have these problems, you don't have the funding to stop them. Yet, despite that, and and I say this in the, in the epilogue of the book that there I was able to track some sixteen million dollars of funding between 2010 and 2019 that flowed into Northeast Park Hill uh, in federal money to help study and or combat gang violence. And every single year it went up, up, up. Um, and this is starting, by the way, in 2010 when partly due to Terrence's independent Colorado Camel movement that had helped reduce gang violence to an all-time low. So the question is, does more funding, more police, all, all of this actually put, get the result that we're looking for, or is there perhaps another way uh, uh, to do it? And I, I think that's certainly one big question as we speak. President Biden has uh, said that he's going to be putting $5 billion into community-based violence prevention programs. So far, it's not spelled out. But I think one thing that would be important to happen is not to have that money be under the auspices of law enforcement, which might have very different goals than some other social services uh, efforts. But, you know, as you say, in terms of the sort of general racism that's been sort of kind of incited or excited in the country, you know, I just one thing I hope the book can do actually is is get at some of these nuances and some of these differences that people don't understand about the other, so to speak. You know, when there's people in 2020 marching and, you know, want, saying abolish the police, and there's other white people maybe in some other neighborhood, you know, afraid of them or now, you know, not understanding them. We need to bridge that divide somehow, at least in terms of education and understanding, 
so that we can all sort of try to realize some similar goals of reducing violence. Um, and it is a difficult uh, moment for that because in, in most of the country, Denver definitely included um, violence and especially um, gang violence, especially in communities of color, is uh, going up. Right. It's a scary summer. Violent crime will make people react. Joe Biden is in your book, not so much Donald Trump. And I think that's a good thing because you illustrate these problems long preceded Donald Trump. Maybe he's thrown some accelerator on it. And when people protest and when you come back, we'll talk about how Terrence and your story goes on. We'll leave it with the suspense of the trial. But the aftermath of that. It's just an incredible Denver story. I I loved it. I encourage people to listen to the book. Go uh, check it out. What's the best way they can order the book and benefit you, Julian? Well, I mean, I would just say for those people in Denver, of course, I would support the independent bookstores. I know that. So Book Bar on the west side in Denver, they are doing their own uh, Book Bar Book Club for June. And um, I hope that they should have some signed copies over there. They definitely have it, as well as, of course, Tattered Cover. I've been there and signed copies. Um, I don't know if they're out of the signed copies or not, but those are two big independent bookstores in Denver that I know have um, you know, really uh, made sure to stock it, so it should be found there. And then, of course, I mean, uh, if there is a my website for the book is thehollybook.com. There, there's a thing called um, – uh, now I'm forgetting the website that has the, the independent – you can choose your own independent bookstore – or, you know, go ahead and buy it for Amazon. Sometimes they have a discount. Um, you can really, you should be able to get it or find it anywhere. And there's not like such a significant difference to me where you do that. I think everybody should get audible.com. I don't get paid by Jeff Bezos. Not yet. But I will say that it's a click away and you do a fantastic job telling this story. And when everybody reads it or listens to it, they're going to say, wow. And then they're going to say, I wonder what the repercussions have been on Julian Rubenstein. So when you come back, let's talk about that, okay? Okay, Craig. Thanks for, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, look forward to talking to you again. Great to talk to you. Best of luck. Great book. Okay. Way thanks to go. A lot. All right. Bye thanks. now. Let me tell you what we do and we don't do at Springer and Steinberg. We do almost everything. We do not do end-of-life planning. That's Michael Bailey. But for all your other legal needs, give me a call. 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. I look forward to speaking with you. Michael Bailey, you've been a lawyer for a decade and a half. I have that beat because I'm a lot older, but you and I have something in common. Uh, We both pride ourselves on being good attorneys, and I've shared with you a little list I have, 20 ways to be a good lawyer. Do you want to go through a few of these right now, and we'll keep going on future talks? What about number one, behave yourself? What does that mean to you? I mean, there's a whole slew of things that you can do as an attorney that are unbecoming or unseemly. You know, whether you break the ethical rules or if you just do things that are a little bit sneaky and underhanded, 
There's no need to do that. You do it the right way. You do it above board. They need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way, too. If you want to keep following this story, then please subscribe on whatever podcast medium by which you acquire this sound, and then leave a positive review. More than anything, push the podcast to your friends. Let them listen. Thank you. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Billy Buck. Howdy. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Thank you. It's not often I get to interview an ex-boss of mine. (laughs) You know, I still think of you that way. It's sort of like high school. People who were there before you got there, wow. Look how they do it. And then you know the feeling, right? Sure. Tell my audience about yourself, where you grew up, and how you came to be a lawyer entitled to come into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Well, I was born in Chicago, lived there till I was 10, then we moved to Midland, Texas, uh, and uh, ultimately we had eight kids. Uh, I was the oldest of eight uh, with a twin brother. Uh, I went to uh, grade school in Texas, and then uh, I went to Amarillo, Texas, to a Christian Brothers High School called Price College. Uh, That's much like Mullen here in Denver. Uh, And then I came to Denver to go to Regis, went for three years, uh, dropped out for one year to work and earn some money to pay for school. But uh, the uh, federal government wanted me, so I got my draft notice, wound up in the Army with uh, Army Air Defense Command, which is part of uh, NORAD in Colorado Springs, uh, and then got out, came back, finished my last year at Regis, and uh, started working as a probation officer for uh, Adams County uh, Juvenile Court, and subsequently uh, got uh, an offer from Denver Juvenile Court, transferred there. During that time, I was going to DU Law School at night, and uh, graduated uh, in 71, passed the bar and was hired by the DA's office. The Denver DA's office, the place to be, right? Correct. Yep. I was I was uh, <clears throat> interviewed by Jarvis Seckham, who had uh, replaced, um, oh, God, who was it? Um, the DA. It was Keating, Bert Keating. No. Is that right? Oh, no. McDevitt. McDevitt. Wasn't it... Uh, the guy who got Congress for a little while? Absolutely, yep. And so Jarvis interviewed me and... Uh, Not McDivitt. Mc, I'm thinking of the uh, uh, personal injury lawyers. I'll come up with it. See what happens when we get older? Keep going. So um, I was going to stay in the DA's office, my original plan, for about five years to get some good trial experience and then go to... Uh, the private sector and 
make the big bucks. But in my second year, one of my younger brothers, Ted, had taken a job at the Arizona uh, State Pen as a correctional officer. <clears throat> he was 25, married with three babies, ages two, three, and four. He had a, a Korean wife he had met when stationed in Seoul, Korea. So uh, six months after he started working there, he and another rookie guard were both uh, killed by inmates who were trying to break out of their cell block. He was stabbed over 40 times. Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry. I, I knew this drove you throughout your career, and it made you relate to victims of murder, the, the family members left behind. That was a real turning point in your life. Am I right? It was, and I uh, I wound up staying 26 years instead of five years and prosecuted 56 murder cases. That's the record. I don't know anybody who's done 56 murder cases. I don't either. <laughs> but how do you how do you count them up? Because I had to try Greg Bradley four times for first degree murder. Does that count as four murder trials or just one? Just one. So mistrials trials don't count. All right. And no. what what if you have two defendants on trial at the same time? Does that count as one trial or two? Two. Okay, just wondering in case I go back into prosecution and want sure, to approach right. your record. <laughs> Isn't that the same number of Joe DiMaggio, the never breakable record for most consecutive hits in a game? I think it's, you're right up there with Joe DiMaggio. Sounds right. You'll take that, huh? Sure. I'm pretty sure that guy's name was Mike McDevitt. Yeah, I... But you're the guy who should know. Tell everybody when you graduated high school so he can get a sense of how old you are. And hell, you're not a woman. Just tell us how old you are. I'm 81. 81. My God, you've had so many experiences. I mean, tragedies, uptimes, incredible highs, incredible lows. I spent last night listening to your music because in your bio, you left that part out. We're not going to leave that part out because... I had a lot of bosses, but not ones who I could go to a bar and watch them sing at night. <laughs> I, I yeah. love your album that you dropped off. And one of the songs, of course, Danny Boy, you sing it as, aren't you an Irish tenor? Is that how you describe your voice? Yes. All right. But, but, uh, Baby, the rain must fall. I think that's your theme song, right? Uh, somewhat, yeah. That was recorded uh, by... Uh... Glenn Yarbrough for a movie of the same title. Right, but you made a living as a singer. Tell everybody about that summer in Vail when Vail was just starting up and your lifestyle. It's, it's amazing. Well, I <clears throat> toward the end of my Army career in Colorado Springs, I was working uh, moonlighting in a bar singing folk music. Met a guy named Jim Wiggins who uh, introduced himself to me uh, where I was working, and he told me he had just graduated from DU School of Restaurant and Hotel Management and that he was the new manager of the uh, lodge at Vale, which had just opened. So he invited me to come up there for the summer uh, to work in a little bar they had upstairs called the Bear Trap and uh, to make additional money as a desk clerk. So I did that for the summer and it was just 
It was the greatest summer. Um, the people were incredible. When you say people, do you mean the women? I mean, my God, you're singing to them in the lounge. You control the front desk. I can only imagine. Were you single? I was, yes. Oh, what a time. What a time. How was Vale in the beginning? Did you envision it was going to become what it has? Uh, <clears throat> not, uh, not at all. Um, I was living in an apartment in the basement of... Pete Seiber's house, and he was one of the founders of Vail. And Pete used to sit on with us at night over a beer, and I had a roommate, and he said, borrow, beg, borrow, steal any money you can get your hands on and invest in real estate up here. And, uh, of course, I didn't listen to him, but I wish I had. Anyway... I, I'm glad you became an attorney. I'm glad I got to know you. And before we leave the subject of music, can you gift us with a little baby, The Rain Must Fall? <laughs> Acapella, sure. Go ahead. Some men climb a mountain. Some men swim the sea. Some men fly above the sky. They are what they must be. But baby, the rain must fall. Baby, the rain must fall. That's enough. <laughs> no, no, it's good. Baby, the wind must blow. Wherever my heart leads me, baby, I will go. I will always think of you. And thanks for gifting us, because that was tremendous. And I think about your life, which has had its ups and downs. You've had a family. You lost your brother. You've lost others. And you've gone through so many health and personal crises, but you're still upright and doing well, singing at age 81. Really, how do you weather the storm? Is that part of your philosophy of life? I just uh, deal with them as they come. Uh, I beat leukemia, which was a big challenge. That took about, I think, about a almost two years out of my life where I really couldn't do that much. But um, then I, I got... know you were almost a goner. I mean, it was serious, and uh, we were worried about you, and I'm sure you were worried about yourself. But that attitude, I think, is kind of what you taught me in the DA's office because you have one case after another. You can't really dwell on one thing. If you've had a big trial, well, guess what? Tomorrow you're going to have 10 more new cases just deal with it one at a time. Am I on to something? No, that's true. Uh, there were times when I had juries deliberating and I was starting uh, jury selection on, on the next case. Right. And it's just like one health challenge, one personal challenge. Deal yep. with it. Take that's, them in order of priority. I think that's all you can do. Who taught you how to be the great prosecutor that you were? Um, I really didn't have any um, mentors because when Dale Tooley uh, beat Jarvis Seckham and came in, uh, most of the staff were uh, worried that he was going to clean house because it was a re Republican office. And uh, uh, so there was a, a huge exodus of more talented uh uh, prosecutors, and I should mention guys because their women were not allowed to 
be in the courtroom at that time. We had two uh, female prosecutors when I started, Ann Allett and Ann Gorsuch, both uh, incredible women, but they were relegated to doing uh, uh, non-payment, you know, uh, cases. Right, not support. And that that Gorsuch name, if it sounds familiar, she became Ann Gorsuch Burford. She had a son, Neil Gorsuch, who's on the Supreme Court now. She went to Washington under Reagan, kind of got screwed over and had to come back. You knew her. What was she like? Uh, She was just uh, very personable, but, uh, you know, uh, she uh, appeared to be very... um, uh, sure of herself, um, I anticipated she would go into private practice or someplace where she would be a great lawyer. But uh, it wasn't until Dale Tooley came in that the the policy changed and he started hiring a lot more female prosecutors. Let's talk about Dale Tooley because he hired me, but I didn't know him well. You probably knew him a lot better. Did you like Dale Tooley? I thought he was the greatest boss I ever had. He was very inventive. Uh, for instance, uh, we were in a meeting one time not too long after he came into office, and he said that he was happy with the jobs we were doing in the courtroom, but that we were uh, not uh, communicating as well as we could with the families, for the, with the crime victims, etc. So he hired two young women who had been sex assault victims as the first uh, victim advocates. And and that is the first victim advocates in the United States. We started it all in Denver. Wow. What year would that have been? Um, I think in 73, 74. Do you remember who they were? Uh, no, and... And kind of can't remember her last name. Are, are you thinking? Uh, well, I know Ann Bormalini worked in the front office. Is there a different Ann? Uh, yeah, yeah. Ann Gable. Yes. Ann Gable. See, she I remember. Was... It comes to me just like Mike McKevitt, not Mike McDevitt. What kind of dummy am I? Mike McKevitt was the last Republican DA in Denver, and he got beat by uh, by Dale Tooley. By Dale. And then, uh, but Dale was, the the thing that I loved about Dale was that he was available to anybody that needed to talk to him about something. All you had to do is show up outside his office and he'd say, get your buddy in here and sit down. And he'd uh, sit down eye to eye. And uh, so he was was just uh, incredible about uh, doing that for anyone from the office. I, I really I missed him when he passed away. I sang at his funeral, by the way. I remember that. What were what were his politics? Would you describe him as conservative, liberal? What were what was it? Um, uh, he wasn't super liberal. He uh, uh, had uh, uh, a uh, like almost like an intuition about things that needed to be done to improve the system. And he worked hard at that. Uh, but I wouldn't know how to classify his politics per se. 
Because I was always trying to figure that out when he kept trying to beat Bill McNichols. Is he more liberal than McNichols? And then when Pena came along, people said he was more conservative than Pena. And I was an underling. You were in the chiefs meetings. Was it Dale that started that tradition of Budweiser beer for the chiefs meetings? Yes, he did. (laughs) Tell everybody about that because I don't know if that would work today. Uh, I don't think it would today either, but I mean, it just, uh, he wanted to find a way for people to relax and open up about what was going on and, you know, to keep him abreast of of any uh, changes or any uh, particular cases that needed more attention. And so... uh, Right. So we're in the big conference room and it's... uh... Surrounded by chief deputies, the DA, the assistant, and uh, there's a lot of Budweiser beer. I, I would drink two or three. What was it, about 4 o'clock? Uh, you and I sat through those meetings. Was was I drinking too much back then? No. And no, then please. we'd go to Copperfields or something like that. And I think that was the way for Dale to keep us from going to Copperfields too early. Let's let's that, just get together on Friday. That may have been part of his thinking. At Copperfields, where the Denver police hung out, and occasionally some public defenders. What's your memory of Copperfields? You know these joints a lot better than I do. Uh, it was very uh, uh, friendly towards law enforcement, and uh, so it was fun. Uh, you felt like you could go and and and. Uh, open up in terms of, you know, relaxing and saying anything that was on your mind, uh, that you're surrounded by people of, of like thinking. So. Right. Right. At Colfax and Eladi, it is kind of where the new courthouse is. And remember Dan Lynch would smoke a cigar walking from 924 West Colfax, the city and county building. And sometimes he'd stop at Copperfields, putting it in his pocket and, Occasionally, a sport coat would start smoking. Uh, yeah, I remember <clears throat> how he uh, smoked, and uh, he he was quite the character. Um, later on, he uh, formed, uh, started a uh, a uh, study group um, with a, a guy who was a uh, professor at DU. Uh, they put together a course called. Uh, the trial, a trial as theater. And so what he was trying to do is teach people how to upstage one, you know, their opponent and take advantage of certain uh, occurrences during a trial. And he, they, I think they taught it maybe twice and just didn't, it didn't hit with the bar. Uh, they, they didn't get much. Uh, right. They didn't believe in thespianism. Back then. Right. He was a thespian, and uh, we all got a kick out of him. There was a character. We had so many different characters. Okay. Was there any? Uh, was there anybody? I mean, like jury selection. How do you know how to do it? You watch other people do it. You watch Bill Buckley. You watch Bill Ritter. You watch other people, and you say, "I could do it like that a little, a little like this." Isn't that the way? The the law practice works. You see something you like, you make it your own. That's true. I think uh, you know. Even when when I was in law school, we we always knew when certain lawyers 
Irving Andrews was a guy who was uh, uh, quite uh, interesting to watch. And there were several people that we would come over from the school and, and watch them in trial, even when I was in law school. But I didn't have that much time to do it. Sometimes I could sneak up and watch, even though I was uh, working as a probation officer at the time. There's some good entertainment. A lot of trial watching is slow and dull, but maybe the train can pick up speed and you can become engrossed in some good courtroom dramas. True. Before we leave the subject of the DA's office, I've talked a lot about him on my show, and I'm fascinated by the man who I did not know well, but I knew a little, and he's a legend of the game, O. Otto Moore. How well did you know that former... Colorado Supreme Court justice we had the privilege of working with for so long. Uh, I knew him very well, and he was another guy who uh, his office door was never closed. If you had a, a legal issue, a question, uh, he could walk in, sit on, and discuss the problem, and he uh, oftentimes would come up <clears throat> off the top of his head with a uh, citation for a case that he thought would help you know, to look at, uh, he was, uh, he was very patient. Um, I don't know how that happened, but, uh, walk-in, uh, people used to be <clears throat> referred uh, to him to answer their questions. And, uh, I'll never forget the day he told us about this lady that came in and, and said that her neighbors were spying on her, that they had some sort of satellites aimed at her house. And he just sat there and, and uh, listened to her <laughs> in, you know, with great interest, although he knew that she uh, had some mental health issues, but it was indicative of how he was. He used wow. to also uh, talk to us about when he was uh, in the DA's office during the time that the, uh, the KKK uh, had a, a foothold in Colorado government government, and, and some of the things they did to try to fight the Klan. So he was fascinating in terms of all of his history. It is interesting to look back at the Klan period almost exactly 100 years ago, and O. Otto Moore recorded some beautiful tapes at the library in the early 60s, the Denver Public Library, so I've been able to play those on air. It's just tremendous. Do you look back on your career, what was it, 26 years, Bill? Yeah. How many of those years were you a chief deputy DA? Um, I think uh, I was there about six or seven years when I was made a chief. Nice. So you've had that great experience prosecuting crimes in Denver. I just read the book, The Holly, about Northeast Denver, Park Hill. A lot of uh, upset about law enforcement and uh, you know about Black Lives Matter. What's yep. your perspective? Some people would say you and I were mass incarcerators. Do you look back and think we were fair, unfair? Uh, do you think Denver was better than most other cities? What's your perspective on all this looking back? Um, I thought we had a, a, a really fair office. I know that when Dale Thule came in, he said that he wanted a, 
a fairer system of um, decision making about what what the charge and and what level of crime he he want he knew that in the old regime that they would most often charge uh, somebody with first degree murder even though it was probably a secondary case with the hope that that would help plea bargaining and Dale uh, caught on to that pretty fast and said he wanted it stopped, that he wanted a, a realistic charge that we could always increase it if necessary, but that he didn't like the idea of using it as a plea bargaining chip. And I uh, I thought he was pretty, uh, you know, um, upfront about it and uh, honest about the charging decisions. And then Dale was succeeded by Norm Early. You and I both worked, I think, the entire tenure of Norm's career as Denver DA. We did. Um, and uh, I, I thought that helped. Uh, we, we, I'll speak for myself. I admired and respected Norm, a proud black man. And I, I just thought things were a little better and different in Denver because I went to George Washington, I'd been around black people. Well, you tell me, you were born in Chicago, you grew up in Texas. Is Denver better than those places? What's your perspective? I I think it's better than most of those places uh, in terms of the way we uh, try to deal with uh, race relations and, and uh I think that we had a fair number of minorities in the DA's office, uh, but Norm Early was a champion of victims, and uh, I really appreciated his uh, his attitudes. Uh, one of the things that struck me about uh, Norm was that one time we were we were at I think at a conference in Estes Park, so it was the whole staff. And he got up in front of everybody and said, I have an apology to make. He said, he said, one of the ladies in this office came to talk to me about something recently. And uh, she was trying to tell me the problem. And I was reading the newspaper at the time. And she jumped me on it and said, you know, I, you have a reputation of not being interested in what what um, staff members say and um, so norm apologized to the group and said uh, you can be assured you will have my attention from now on which i thought took a lot of uh, you know uh, intestinal fortitude or whatever to admit that he had been doing that and uh, was not aware that he was not listening very well so right introspection. It's a good quality. Mm -hmm. And think about that mass incarceration thing. You worked uh, for many years before I got there, but the pendulum has swung so frequently when it comes to proper punishment. I think back when you started, people would say, my God, you only get that little for first degree murder or child abuse or sexual assault on a child. And then once I came in in 1980, the pendulum started to swing the other way, culminating in, wow, you get that much for these crimes? Talk to everybody about the pendulum of sentencing that you've seen in your career and what you think is the right way to go about it. 
Well, from 1971 to 1978, uh, if you were tried or or or, or um, pled guilty to first-degree murder, uh, you were released whenever the parole board wanted to release you. And it turned out they were letting people out in uh, about 10 to 11 years. Uh, so in 78, the legislature took a look at that and said, wait a minute, we get people doing more time for second-degree murder and armed robbery than for first-degree murder. So they passed the law that said you have to do 20 actual calendar years before you're eligible to meet the parole board for the first time. That was in 78. Then in 85, uh, Don Milkey, who had been a DA, the DA in Jefferson County, was in the legislature. He proposed the Milkey bill, which doubled that 20 to 40. So in 85, it, it meant that you had to do uh, 40 calendar years before you could meet the parole board. Then in 90, they changed it again and made it life without parole or uh, or life or the death penalty. So it went from 10 to 20 to 40 to actual life. So, Right. And sexual assault on a child, one of my first district court cases, I proved this guy violated his little boys in just a horrible way with a bad object. Anyway... It carried two to four years, and it wasn't even mandatory sentence. Now that crime carries up to life in prison. So on sex crimes, it's been a similar dramatic change. Am I right? Correct. Which is the right way? What do is America incarcerating too many people for too long? You've been a criminal defense attorney as well. What's your perspective? I, I think, uh, depending on the type of offenses that, uh, for instance, some people who are involved in low-level possession of cocaine and heroin, stuff like that, uh, don't need to be uh, sentenced to prison, uh, that probation and, and treatment is, is a better option. Um, and there are other crimes like that that I think... Uh, have a, uh, right, but, but what, a, a, what, what about a guy who is convicted of sexual assault on a child? He he's pretty much done forever. I don't personally believe that people can change that way. That that treatment can be that effective. Um, I think far too many uh, just go through the motions if if required to go through treatment and. Uh, that's kind of uh, a scary situation. You worked with so many police officers in your career. What's your thoughts about the police? They're in the eye of the storm now. How do you feel about it? Um, I think they've gotten a, a really bad rap that, uh, you know, I uh, had a great relationship with many Denver police officers. And uh, I never... Uh, and, and by the way, I was on the street a lot as an on-call DA, and I never saw any uh, evidence in person that I witnessed myself uh, where they uh, overreacted and were, you know, beating a, a suspect, uh, you know. Right. It, but I was present when... 
Donnie DeBruno, who was a homicide detective, was shot the night he was shot. And uh, I had been just around the corner when it happened and got to him as he was saying. Where did that happen at? It happened in front of the old uh, trailway bus station on Broadway. Broadway and what? Up around 22nd, 23rd? I'm not sure what the crossroad was, but it was fairly close to the Brown Palace. Uh, okay. Uh, right. Near where that Avis is. Yeah. And, uh-huh. Except on the other side of the street. Okay. It was on, on the Brown Palace side. I, I don't know my directions downtown very well. But uh, a guy named Sherbondi was wanted for a triple homicide in Canada. And somebody had alerted the Canadian authorities that he was at the Denver railway station. And uh, I was in the homicide bureau that night. We had been working on a case and the call came in. And so the homicide detectives all ran out and went over there to the bus station, started going through it. They had a description of him. Uh, Don DeBruno came on his walkie-talkie and said he, saw a guy going out a particular door that he thought fit the description. So he followed him. And when they got outside, uh, there was a confrontation between the two of them and they both pulled out guns and and shot each other. And Don, Don was able to, I don't know why, but he ran across Broadway and then collapsed and, and died. Uh, the other guy, Sherbondi, uh, survived his wounds. Gosh. And was he prosecuted? Was that a death penalty case? You know, I don't, I don't, for some reason, I don't remember how. That's all right. You can't remember everything. But I do remember a Denver cop that maybe you didn't respect that much. Who was that? James King. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) James King. It's 30 years ago. This week, saw you on Channel 9. You were talking about uh, a case that I remember oh so well. I can't believe it's been 30 years, but tell everybody about one of the most famous cases of your illustrious career, the United Bank murder case. Well, unfortunately, the jury felt we didn't have enough evidence. They they said to me afterwards, uh, we think he did it, but you didn't have enough proof and. uh, that's the thing that a DA never wants to hear. James King had retired from the Denver Police Department as a sergeant and got a job as a security guard with the United Bank of Denver and ultimately quit uh, working there because they decided to disarm the uh, the guards. And uh, so on Father's Day 30, 30 years ago, uh, we believe, I believe in my heart that it was King and took the first guard who had let him in down to a storeroom and shot him multiple times, took his ID card, which you need to open up doors down in that system and went to the guard control room um, where there was a, a, a guard uh, sitting at the desk who really didn't even look up because King was able to use the, the the card that he had taken from the first dead guy 
to get in. And uh, so he then uh, forced that guy into a, a room that was adjacent that had a bunch of batteries to keep the, the bank going and keep power up in certain areas. He shot him and then uh, two, two guards that were uh, walking around uh, touring the bank came in and he forced them into the same room and shot them. Uh, ironically, one of the two of the last ones was a young man who had just been hired but had not yet gone to work. So he was there on his own time with a friend of his who was a, a security guard and just walking around and learning the, the ropes. So he lost his life for showing up uh, when he wasn't scheduled to work. Uh, and it, 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 it was a sensational crime 30 years ago this week. Four people shot dead. Was there another guy injured? Or did anybody survive the shooting? Nobody uh, survived the shooting. We uh, felt, based on the evidence, that because he had fired a total of um, 18 rounds into the four bodies collectively, and he fired another round into a, a door in the guard control room where he was trying to break in to uh, access a, a videotape that he thought was still in there, but it had been removed. Uh, he didn't. He wasn't successful in getting into that, but he spent an inordinate amount of time in that guard control room, uh, taking care of the victims by killing them, and then uh, trying to get into that uh, sergeant's room. Uh, so by the time he got down to the cash vault, uh, he knew he had only a, a short amount of time left before it would be ten o'clock, and. Uh, employees from the bank would show up at the cash room and pick up uh, all of the checks that had been delivered by armored cars. And that would be a, a group of people, and he didn't want any more people as witnesses. Um, I'm convinced that he had uh, six rounds in his revolver plus two speed loaders, and that when he got to the cash room, he had expended all of his ammunition or there would have been more bodies. Wow. It was a sensational trial. It was on court TV. You had right. formidable opposition, Walter Garash and Scott Robinson. Correct. And your co-counsel was Lamar Sims. True. This happened on Father's Day. And do you remember the backdrop? What was going on in the city right then? You know, I'm... I'm I, I'll tell you what it was. Sure. It was 30 years ago on Tuesday that Wellington Webb beat Norm Early for Denver mayor. And I remember when this atrocious crime happened, the Father's Day massacre at the cash register building, that Norm Early showed up. I, I know Mike Little was on homicide duty, the late great Mike Little, and but Norm showed up and did some uh, broadcasts from the scene saying the appropriate things about how we would get to the bottom of it and all of that. Now, do you remember? Yes, I remember Norm's participation in the uh, release of information. Do you remember how I got involved in that case? Um, not for sure, no. Well, I wouldn't expect you to because it's my life and uh, I, you remember your parts, but 
I was just observing it. I was already a chief deputy DA. We, Mike Little and I had been successful in getting a death penalty verdict against Frank Rodriguez. Everybody sized this up as a possible death penalty case. Um, Mike Little had some responsibility on the case, being the homicide deputy. He was working with the Homicide Bureau and getting information and updates. And as right. you recall, there were alternate suspects. Well, Mike Little was in the military reserves, and he was getting called out of town during a critical portion of the investigation. He said, Craig, come to my office. I want to brief you on this case and have you work with homicide detectives putting it together because we think we may be arresting this guy on the Eastern Plains. You remember that part of it. It was not the right guy, but a different suspect. And then Mike Little leaves, and then suddenly the case turns towards James King. And one clue after another, and I'm working with your friend, John Priest, and the FBI, and next thing you know, we're putting together an arrest warrant and a search warrant, and we're executing it right while the fireworks are going on at the Jefferson County Fairgrounds across the 6th Avenue from the Indiana Street home of James King. And I was there with Joe DeMott. We went and got the judge to sign the warrant. And one thing that's true throughout that case, you litigated it, Bill, but the warrant stood up, right? And the search warrant was good. The arrest warrant was good. Yep. And Gary Graham, who was the head of the Forensics Bureau, came out of the house, said, Craig, we've got him. He had the shoes with the distinctive footprint, and I was not going to authorize an arrest unless they found something during the search, and James King was just detained, not arrested. Then I said, okay, with the arrest. Do you remember all that? And tell everybody what happened with those shoes. I thought they were the smoking gun. Well, it turned out that they were the wrong size uh, when when a close uh, analysis was made. But they were they were close, but not not the right exact pattern. And the accidental marks that uh, that occur from wear uh, were not uh, observable on those shoes as compared to the print that they were uh, looking at. Uh, the, the print, by the way, was on the wall leading into the uh, uh, the guard control room that King was trying to enter. Right, because the perpetrator had presumably kicked the door, right? It had kicked the, the sheetrock and actually put his foot through it. But the problem, okay. the problem was that underneath the sheetrock was about a one-inch piece of uh, plywood uh, and then sheetrock on the on the inside too, so he he wasn't able to make entry that way. Here's what else I remember is that because of my role taking over for Mike Little, then we had a press conference the next morning with Ari Zavaris and Bob Pence announcing the arrest, and so uh, I was sitting there trying to limit Savaris and Pence from saying too much about it. And then next thing I know, Walter Grash is showing up with motions, and we had a hearing right there in the pre-arraignment detention facility about whether his picture could be published, those sorts of things. So um, I got involved at the outset. Norm Early had left town after losing the election. I don't know if you remember this, but we were kind of rudderless for a while. 
And yep. Uh, yep. then Norm showed up at police headquarters, and he and I have talked about it in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. He wasn't that happy that I hadn't called him at home. I'm not sure I even knew what his home number was or that he was at home. And uh, next thing I know, you and Lamar were assigned to the case. And some people say, well, that's a good break for you, Craig. And maybe, maybe not. So now you know my perspective on the case. And then toward the end of the case, which I kind of followed on court TV, um, then Norm said, hey, can you and Alec Cape come in and share some closing argument thoughts with uh, Lamar and Bill. And we did. We wanted you to win, and doggone it. Uh, you you and John Priest go around giving presentations on this case. It's still a, a fascination. Was James King really guilty? And your conclusion is, yeah, he was, right? Yes, I will uh, believe to my death that we had the right person and the wrong jury. And he you kick yourself I have that case I had to try four times. Twice there was one juror that screwed me up. And you just have to live with that as a prosecutor, right? If people will end up on the jury, that's kind of beyond your control. That's true. and But, you know, if you believe in your case and you have to retry it, that's that's what you should do. I had one case like that where I tried it twice with uh, – hung juries, and then third time uh, with a guilty verdict. So, well, I had, uh, Yeah. Uh, and my, I eventually got that guy for first-degree murder. And we'll go back to your story, but I'm thinking about fast food this week for whatever reason. So I, two of the trials were 11-to-1 verdicts. Right. And the other one, my star witness, who was a little psychotic, had a mental break on the stand. And Corelli said, hey, Silverman, can you— See if you can fix this. And I took him to that McDonald's on 16th Street, yeah. 16th and Court, which yeah. has a force field of its own. Sure. And we went in there, and I tried to calm him down. And he went so nutty in there that even the normal nuts were like, what's up with this guy? And I, I had to go back and say, I don't think he's going to make a judge. Did you ever go in that McDonald's? Yes, I have. Do you know what I'm talking about? Isn't that the most unusual McDonald's in Colorado? Yeah, the design is is not like any I've ever seen. Nor are most of the people inside. Anyway. That's that's true. (laughs) But back to your story, how many times did you have to survive mistrials and go back for more? I never... um... Never really kept track of how many mistrials I had, but I had my share, and um, I would uh, I would not give in. Uh, I I felt that some of the deputies were too quick on on uh, offering a, a lower plea on a case just to get rid of it, but I my attitude was that we reserve trial time for the serious cases, the murders and the serious sex assaults and plea bargain the rest. You had a good attitude. My God, 56 murder cases. The one that stands out, it's summertime. Everybody's going to the pool. My wife had a beautiful upbringing out in Morrison, Colorado, and they splurged when they moved here to go to a country club called Pinehurst. I don't know if you know this, Bill Buckley, but 
My wife was there the terrible day that a homicide happened at Pinehurst. Tell everybody about that case, which has meant so much to your career and to Colorado law. Um, Sue and uh, Wally Conley had one daughter, uh, and uh, Michelle was 11 years old. Wally was a CPA. Uh, They decided that they wanted a quote-unquote safe place for Michelle to swim. So they joined the uh, Pinehurst Country Club on one particular day. Uh, they went out there and uh, Wally and Sue were on the tennis courts, which were next to the pool. And uh, Michelle was swimming with a family friend. She went down to the sub-basement area to use the restroom as she came out. Uh, a guy named James Lowe, who happened to be the only uh, custodian on duty at that date and time, was sitting at a table uh, uh, in the hallway where she had to pass. Uh, from where he was sitting, there were two double doors about uh, five to ten feet away. All he had to do is get her uh, through those doors down to a lower area of the basement and back through the uh, the room where the the um, custodians had lockers and where they dressed at the back side of that room was a small room that was maybe uh, 15 feet by 15 feet and it had circuit breakers on the walls uh, all around uh, to control the power at the country club all he had to do was get her through those first double doors whether by force or by trick and uh, took her back into that uh, area uh, where the circuit breakers were and she was later found underneath some astroturf carpeting on the floor of that room uh, in the back of her head had been uh, pretty well beaten in with a a club that we called a a, a pounding stick it was a heavy uh, metal uh, stake that the custodians used to start holes in the ground outside when they were trying to put up tents and awnings. And uh, that turned out to be the murder weapon. Oh, my God. This was one of the worst crimes in Denver history. Tell us about the legal issues involved. Didn't he give a statement and it established some Colorado law about Miranda, etc.? Well, uh, he was picked up uh, early in the morning and by Frankie Reno, by the way, he was a patrolman at the time. Talk about great singers. Yeah. And uh, Frankie brought him down to homicide and had him sitting there smoking a cigarette when John Wyckoff walked in. He was a homicide detective. Uh, and Wyckoff said to him, I'm Detective Wyckoff. Do you know why you're here? And uh, Lowe said, yeah, I expected somebody to pick me up. And at that time, Wyckoff advised him of his Miranda rights and uh, Lowe admitted killing the girl but would not give details why, how, or anything like that, just that he had done it. Um, At uh, pretrial motions, the the public defenders filed a motion to suppress that uh, statement and Joe Quinn was the trial judge at the time and he ruled that it was a trick question and that it was improper to ask that question before giving the Miranda rights. 
so he suppressed the, the statement. Um, I went to uh, Brooke Wanneke, who was the head of our appellate section and is one of, one of the brightest lawyers I ever knew, and asked her what we could do. And she said, we can take an interlocutory appeal challenging the judge's ruling. So I said, let's do that. And it took one full year, 12 months, before the Supreme Court came down with their decision. Unfortunately, during that period of time, there was a, a vacancy on the Supreme Court. And Joe Quinn, the trial judge, was appointed to the Supreme Court. He had to recuse himself. Are you still there? Yeah, it's a beautiful story. He had to recuse himself, but of course now the brethren have to decide whether they're going to... I mean, it's beautiful in terms of the way the legal system works. Right. Of course, the crime was horrific. Right. Keep going. So uh, when they came back, uh, once once Joe Quinn was on the court, I thought, you know, they're going to find a way to uphold his ruling, and they did in a very narrow decision say that he was correct in suppressing that. Now... My attitude when handling murder cases was uh, the defense start their investigation once the case is filed. The police stop their investigation once the case is filed. And so my attitude was we need to keep looking at different kinds of things that we can use even though uh, the police are no longer responsible for the case. And so in that particular case, I started checking to see who had been cellmates with James Lowe at the county jail and found a federal prisoner named Harry Steffens. And Harry turned out to be the most incredible uh, witness I've ever had in terms of a jailhouse confession. Howard Pankratz from the Post came up to me afterwards. He says, I've never heard anything so convincing as what that guy had to say. So I, I got his statement and then I also and had a, had a call from a defense attorney into my life. I can't remember who it was. But he had a client in the county jail who was uh, was housed with Frank Rodriguez, who you know well. Yes. And uh, it appears that James Lowe had written a love letter to, to Frank Rodriguez because, mm -hmm. because of their relationship earlier when he was at uh, Buena Vista. And so... Uh, this lawyer called me and said that his client was a cellmate of Rodriguez and had swiped that letter and then given it to the lawyer to call me. And so I, I was skeptical at first. I said, well, why don't you read it to me? And when he did, I said, where are you? <laughs> and and I was in his office five minutes later picking up that letter with Randy Gordnier, my investigator. And it was what a great guy Randy was. He was a blessed memory. Yeah, keep going. And so, in the letter, he he tell he tells Frank, "Don't think bad about me when you find out why I'm here." But you know how I am with kids, and when she hurt me with her mouth, uh, with her teeth, is what he said. I I lost control and started to uh, um, you know hit her. And uh, when I interviewed Frank and his roommate, I mean, his soulmate, they said that that meant that uh, he had forced her to perform oral sex. You interviewed Frank Rodriguez about it? Wow. I did. 
And then, then in the death penalty case, he ended up writing incriminating letters too, and it probably stuff he had learned from the James Lowe experience yep. somehow. Pro- twisted, probably. Right. But the letter was was dynamite. It it was signed J L with a heart and an arrow through it, and so we had f- not only one but four handwriting experts. Uh, look at it and all agreed that it was James Lowe's handwriting. And that's exactly what happened. I even have the the poster exhibit in Frank's handwriting. And he said, I had to kill that bitch Martelli. And uh, it it almost sounds like a duplicate. Keep going. And so that got in. Uh, We actually amended when we got that letter because uh, originally he was charged with de- murder after deliberation. So then I added a felony murder count and a sex assault on a child count. And uh, they all three went to the jury and they, the jury was out 45 minutes. Uh, what, what happened though, was that uh, because uh, of that letter and me endorsing French Rodriguez and uh, uh, his his cellmate, who I can't remember his name, mm-hmm. um, the public defenders withdrew from from Lowe's case because they had represented these guys first, and uh, Earl Wilder was appointed to represent Lowe, and uh, he did a a decent job, but his heart wasn't really in the case. But uh, jury was out forty five minutes. Um, Earl when he and and they convicted his ass. And the thing is that Bill Buckley, when he takes a bite out of you, he doesn't let go, especially when he's full of righteous indignation, which I know you were and anybody would be, because you formed a bond with these parents of poor little Michelle. Tell everybody what you keep doing to help this family. Well, he is a. He was originally eligible to meet the parole board for the first time in 2004. In 2021, he's still in prison. His last setback was about a year ago. I have appeared at four different parole hearings, uh, first with the father and Wally and his wife and Sue got a divorce and she remarried a a prominent uh, Aspen lawyer named Bob Kendig, who's just a a really neat guy. But the first hearing, she was not in the country. And so Wally went to that hearing with me. And then since then, uh, Sue has been at all of the hearings. The last one was a year ago. And in Lowe at the time decided when he found out we were there, that he wasn't going to attend the hearing. So the parole board member gave him a five-year setback, which uh, occurs in about four more years, he'll come up for another review. And you'll be there again? If I'm still kicking, I'm 81 now, and I'd be 85 when that happens, but yes. Nothing can get to you. Gosh, you do that on your own time. I, I don't expect anybody is paying you, and you probably have to monitor this situation, right? That's true. No, nobody's paying me at all. I I do it because of my... Uh, caring for Sue and her family and her sister is very involved. Uh, We had a hard time uh, conversing on me 
after they separated, but before the case went to trial, we would call her and then call Wally to let him know when something was coming up, a motions hearing and what we expected to happen. Uh, he just was very hard to communicate with and most of the time would not take our calls. And mm -hmm. I guess that was the case where it, it became apparent to me that men and women deal with that kind of tragedy in a different way. That I think I think everybody does. Everybody handles grief and trauma on their own terms. And maybe men and women are a lot different, but I, I think you have to be open to all sorts of reactions, right? Well, what I was getting at is that the men don't show their emotions like women do. And uh, so we later found out that Wally's secretary was trying to protect him by keeping some of our calls from going through. That's what I wonder. I mean, for our own self-protection, and I didn't do the number of cases or serve the number of years you did, but at a certain point, don't you have to move on emotionally to the next client, the next case? Uh, I mean, how do you do that balance in your own life? Um, I guess... It depends on the facts of the case and, and right. what I prioritize, but uh, I don't, I, I mean, I have never prosecuted anybody, and I say this in all honesty, I've never prosecuted a murder case where I didn't honestly believe that this person was the right person, uh, including James King. Uh, and Well, isn't that, isn't that the beauty of working in Denver? As I used to tell people, we have more than enough real criminals to prosecute here. We we don't have to make up things. We've got plenty to do. Don't you think that was an advantage in Denver? And, and we had a lot of great people. You've discussed them, Dale, Norm. There was a culture there, and I think it was a good culture. I do, too, uh, both under Dale and under uh, Norm. Um I started uh, not being as uh, strong about the office after Dale left. And uh, I guess I'm not going to go into my personal views about uh, how Bill Ritter did his job, but I wasn't. I was spoiled by Dale and by Norm. And I broke in with Bill, and I ran against him in 96. And so we had our disagreements, although we get along well now. And when I started at 924 West Colfax, there were a bunch of senior people on that second floor, including you and including Beth McCann, the current DA. Yep. She came in after you. She's the DA now. Your thoughts on that subject? Um, because... Um totally retired by the time she came in. I haven't had any uh, uh, real dealings with her. I've, I've talked to her on a couple of rare occasions to, to be able to review some of my old files for presentations, but um, I think that uh, Beth is a, a, a nice person, but she's a lot more liberal than, than I think uh, the others were. And then you are. I, I respect that. And uh, it's just interesting. You've seen them come and go 
I was one of the many. I feel privileged to have you as my chief for a while there. I think courtroom 10, Bill Ritter and I were working under your tutelage. Um, Through the years, what stands out, you've mentored a lot of people. I take credit for Stan Garnett, Mitch Morrissey, because I was their chief. But what what springs to mind for you? Well... I always had some really great uh, deputies assigned when I was there, the chief. And but you were one of the guys that I knew wasn't going to need a lot of uh, personal help. That you really had uh, the uh, insight and ability to prosecute anything that came along. And uh, so I was glad to see you move on to being a chief. Well, thank you. That's exactly the compliment I was fishing for right there, Bill Buckley. You've been so nice to spend time with me, and uh, I I think it's only appropriate that uh, we hear that other song I always associate with you, and as Danny Boy. (laughs) How many times do you think you've sung that on a stage in your life? Oh, well, every uh, St. Patrick's Day, for one, uh, for about 20 years at a Irish pub called Shabian's Pub, uh, but other than that, probably, probably fifty times at least. Can we get a little Danny Boy from you? Because I hear the pipes are calling. We can try. <laughs> oh, Go for it. Oh, Danny Boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling from glen to glen and down the mountainside. The summer's gone, and all the flowers are dying. It's you, it's you, must go, and I must bide. That's Oh, that's perfect, Bill. That's perfect. I, 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 you could go on. I've got your album here. And I wish you were more... T- uh, how can people get your album? I listened to it last night. I listened to it a couple months ago when you brought it by. I like your music. Tell everybody about the album, where it was recorded, and I would be proud of it, and I know you are. I was. Um, what it really came about in a, in a funny way, I was friends with uh, Walt Conley, who was a black folk singer in Denver, and he opened up a club on South Broadway uh, right across from the old Ward store called Conley's Nostalgia. And he had been a nationally known folk singer in the 60s and 70s. And so he wanted to try to get people reinterested in folk music. So he had this bar where there was the outer bar where you could sit around the bar. And then you could go through these double doors. And there was an entertainment room with a stage. And Walt was pretty strict about it. He, he said, if you want to party and talk, stay out in the outer bar. If you want to listen come in here and so it attracted it was a venue where you always had an audience that was there to listen and so a lot of the people that I knew in town that were trying to make a living as entertainers would stop by there and and get up and sing a few songs just because they enjoyed that the, the fact that the crowd was there for the right reasons I when I was on call I would uh leave a homicide scene and if I was through doing what I was supposed to be doing there I would oftentimes stop by Walt's club 
this would be late in the evening and he'd tell me to get my butt up there and sing a couple songs i was wearing a suit and a tie and uh, i i kept doing that on and off and that was my way of releasing or relaxing after dealing with the violence that i just been through or had just seen so to speak and so I hope to God I hope to God nobody ever heckled you because you were probably armed as well, right? Yeah, probably most of the time. <laughs> but uh, the the audience was incredible, and so finally one day, Walt came to me and said, "Hey, you don't know this, but you've got a following that you've developed there at the club, and they keep asking me when is Bill Buckley coming back, and he keeps telling them, uh, I have no idea. It's just whenever he decides to stop in." So he asked me if I would do a uh, a Friday or a Saturday night show. And so uh, we set it up, and that's where I did it. Uh, I invited a lot of people from the office. Norm Early was there. Brooke Wanaki was there. Rich Keenan, a bunch of other DAs, and also a couple homicide detectives with their wives who were who came just because they wanted to see if it was true that I could sing. And so it was a funny evening. Uh, we we were using the stage mics, which is not studio quality sound. And it was a year later when Walt's wife told me she had found uh, a cassette tape of of that um, that concert. And so she gave it to me. And my son, who is into music, uh, uh, contacted a company and they trans transferred it to uh, the CDs and made a bunch of copies. So, all right, well, tell them to put it on SoundCloud now. That's what the hip people do. And all this music that I've heard you sing, I've never asked you, are any of these original compositions or do you like to do covers like Baby the Rain Must Fall and Danny Boy? No, uh, I'm not smart enough to write my own songs. Uh, uh, I thought maybe you wrote that super skier one. That must have gone over in Vail. It and did. Then, it was recorded by a friend of uh, of Walt's uh, from God. What's his name? He's a he was a well known folk singer out of Chicago, but he had been in Aspen for a while and, and wrote a couple of those ski songs. Um, right, but you have variety. I mean, you combine folk and reggae on Jamaica Farewell. Yeah, Am I right? True. Yep. Anyway, you're the best, Bill Buck. Bill Buckley, my former boss, longtime chief deputy DA. I can't thank you enough for spending so much quality time in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. And let's talk again in about five years after you keep below in jail one more uh, session. I hope to do that. Um, the This podcast, is it live or, or do you record oh, it? Yeah, well, 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 we'll get it. It drops Saturday mornings, 9 a.m., and I will, through technology, put it on your smartphone. That's the way to get it. And then you subscribe, and you get it every week and listen to smart lawyers like yourself. Okay. All right, Billy Buck. Thanks a lot for your time. Thanks. Be well. All right. Okay. See you. Bye now. Michael Bailey, a friend a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's gonna happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's gonna go, you know who's gonna get it. We've got everything in place, so we're not running to a court to try to get 
guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined, it's all set up. So there's, it's like the, the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right, and if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Craig, how are you? I'm good. I'm not a big shot like you all over town working your incredible day job and singing your heart out on the weekends for more money. Way to go. (laughs) I don't know about the money part, but it is fun. You do it professionally. It might not be tens of thousands of dollars, but it's cash money. And I think that's cool that somebody pays you for your art. Yes, it, it's good. And it and it pays for my Starbucks, or at least most of it. Right. And you are traveling now Denver streets. I'm going to post. We already have post on our Instagram, my gold master Instagram. But it's Dave Gunders and myself, his dog, Riley, my two dogs, Skylar and Iko. And we're walking some beautiful trails. And... There's only one busy street that we cross, and it's not that busy in our neighborhood. Let's reveal it. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Holly. And you know what book I'm talking about this week? The Holly. The Holly. The Holly. And Holly. But Holly is in these videos of ours, and it's one of the cool coincidences of The book, you know, I grew up in Virginia Village, just like I discussed with Josh Thallis, and I'd ride my little bicycle uh, when I was old enough to ride a bike up to the Holly Shopping Center at Florida and Holly, where they had donuts and stuff I could get for the family for a nickel or a dime. I I know it well. It's close to my office. Right. Not the the donut shop, but that, that intersection. It's an Ace Hardware now. I grew up right near there, and when I bought my first house, 1643 South Ivy Way. So the title of this week's show is 
Denver streets. And you know what? One of the avenues is named in Denver, Colorado. What's that? Let me give you a hint. It goes with your song this week. Louisiana. Louisiana. I I think of South High School on Louisiana. It runs through the heart of Denver. And I know Louisiana is deep in your heart. But before we go to that part of your heart, let's go to the border state of Louisiana, Texas, because you and I were taking one of those walks across Holly on the open public trails. And we talked about a house you called the Alamo House. And didn't you grow up for a while deep in the heart of Texas? I was. I was a Houston boy. And I'll never forget when my dad took me to uh, to see the Alamo. And what were the emotions? Do you recall what year it was? Was this back in the 30s, 40s? Like It would have been like 1959 or something. I was probably like six or seven. And, um, oh, I mean, those guys were my heroes, you know. Jim Bowie. Got the name right this time. Daniel Boone, Sam Houston. All, all those guys yeah, were Davey rich in Cro- my imagination. I think you're thinking of Davy Crockett. Davy Crockett. Okay, I don't want to burst your bubbles. I started to the other day on our walk when you were going on about the Alamo, but I could tell you something about how your mind works. Keep going, though. Well, anyway, it was, no, it was, it was, uh, very, it was very alive in my imagination of these, you know, these great American frontiersmen. And who were um, who are they fighting? Well, they were they were fighting Santa Ana's troops of Mexico. What were they fighting about? Territory. What else? Right, but what there else? was something else because part of Mexico didn't like slavery, and another part did. And guess which side did? Boy, I didn't. I've never really. I'm. I'm not up on Mexico's. Um, you know what, what the Mexican people thought or did about slavery. Here's what happened, according to a new book. I'll try to get the authors on. And I hate to destroy your childhood dreams. I bet you got there about sixty or sixty-one because that's when it really took off. The Legend of the Alamo, because John Wayne made a movie, a movie that he hoped would help his candidate for president, Richard Nixon, defeat the godless communists, and he wanted to create some American heroes like Davy Crockett, who fought to the death. The only problem is there was a lot of history written by the Mexican side of things that said, no, he surrendered and he got executed, as was the custom there. And the big fight was over slavery. No kidding. And the Texans wanted to keep slavery. I had no idea about that. And now we have this new history coming out of Texas, Juneteenth. It's a national holiday. Right. And it flows out of Texas. And when the word finally reached the people of Galveston, June 19, 1865, long after the emancipation proclamation but it takes time for the word to get around and that was the liberation day and i'm happy to celebrate it but think about that you and i love the musical hamilton it all depends on who writes the history and in the case of your young brain i was going to say little brain you've got a beautiful brain my troubadour it might have been impacted by john wayne trying to create a jingoistic movie that was not 
historically accurate. Right, right. How do you feel They all now? perished, you, though. So you're saying they didn't. My understanding was they all perished. They all did. Santa Ana overran yeah. them, but a lot of them cut and ran and got mowed down that way. Not all of them just stayed inside. But, yeah, it was a fight to the death. Davy Crockett right. had been a congressman. And the other thing that really ignited the uh, Alamo story was Fess Parker playing yes. a character in a very heroic manner. Sure. But the interesting thing is, just with January 6th and with the author of the book, The Holly, it depends on who tells the history, right? And it's there are a lot of different perspectives on how things happened. But as it happened, Santa Ana's troops, they kept pretty good records. And it seemed like the legend of the Alamo never really grew until that John Wayne movie. Wow. Ah, that's not too surprising. Well, I right. hope that doesn't destroy your childhood. No, no, no. I've I've learned that it's the it's the victor that writes the history books. At this point, especially, Craig, in revisiting some of our country's history, and in light of the plight of uh, Native Americans, of the slaves, and everything, it's like I think everybody has to revisit some of their earlier notions right. as taught and, in grammar school and middle school. Yeah, yeah. and and there's a. Uh, I, I will link the article for everybody because I think that's good discussion. And they talk about in Texas how it's against the law really to talk about these things. And that's another interesting matter. Who controls uh, what you can talk about, uh, critical race theories, stuff like that. But I will say this, uh, Colorado was part of the Kansas Territory and they were fighting about whether it was going to be a slave territory, you know, the Missouri Compromise, that stuff. And it came to a head before Colorado really got involved in any of that crap. And to my knowledge, right. there were never slaves in Colorado, but there sure as hell were in Texas. And they put them to work picking cotton, the same wow. model used yeah. in the South. And... The Mexican people, Santa Ana, they'd seen enough discrimination. They did not like slavery based on skin color, and they were for abolition of slavery long before the South uh, and North went at it in America. So isn't that interesting? Once again, I'm learning all kinds of new and uh, interesting facts. Well, Great. I didn't know about it till you talked about the Alamo House, which we will oh. post on our Instagram page. And yeah. Here's how the holly starts. It's Terrence Roberts. His ancestors come up from Arkansas, having felt the sting of slavery, Jim Crow. A lot of people from the South moved to the North, be it to Chicago. Some came to Denver. And you have a song about migration out of the South, this time more caused by Katrina and natural causes. But you spent time in Texas, and I know your love for Louisiana. Do you feel, to me, the little I've been in the South, like New Orleans, I didn't like it because I sort of felt uh, the weight of the old South. Right, and New Orleans, yeah. It. I mean, when you go as a, I mean, even though I love going there, you know, uh, during during Jazz Fest and I, and I love the city, it's still, I'm a tourist, and, you know, going to the French Quarter, uh, it's it's a little oasis of uh, you know of liberal thinking and culture within the South. So I don't you know although 
all around. I mean, you see the, there's there there are the old you know um, you know mansions, estate mansions of the cotton plantations and everything right there. Um, but still, New Orleans feels um, like a like a like a beacon of light, <laughs> shining a you know a liberal ki- kind of um, vitality in the South. I like so I'm it. not sure it's fair to yeah, and the rest of the South for me, I don't think it's it would be ever it would be home for me again. Right, that light right at the mouth of the Mississippi, pouring into the Gulf of Mexico, Katrina was a big event, but uh, I know your music traces a lot of roots to New Orleans. I thought you might be mad at me this week because I had to tell you I've been cheating with another singer. Bill Buckley was on before you, and he sang a cappella. I gave you his album. He was my boss back in the day. What do you think of my buddy who is the Irish tenor? Well, I really just just a shout out to Bill Buckley. I really enjoyed his CD, his his singing and his guitar playing. Um, he's a, I think he's a very accomplished musician. I really enjoyed listening to to the CD, and so therefore I will put my any jealousies that the troubadour might have are put aside. He sang one of the songs that you told me you still sing with your pops and your daughter. Jamaica farewell. Right. Tell everybody my that dad song. And I, when I was, you know, yeah, my dad sang a many little. Of those songs. I'm going to put the heat on you. Sing that a little. People will recognize. One the fine day in the month of May, when the sun shines daily on the mountain top, I took a trip on a sailing ship, reached Jamaica. I made a stop, and so on. And you know, I think Bill would actually Sad carry say, that to I'm on a lot, my way. Yeah, hey, I'm not a good singer, That's but it. I'm willing to do That's it. it. Because you are so infectious, and Bill Buckley sang that song, and here we're featuring your song, which has a similar title. Instead of Jamaica Farewell, it's Louisiana Goodbye. What inspired this beautiful song of yours? This was right, literally, I was working for a client here in Denver during Katrina, um, and and, um, the woman I was working for and her husband went down to get her parents, who were had basically been um, well. Their 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 home had been lost. They were like 50 miles to the to the west of of New Orleans, but to the south. So they were basically right on the Gulf, and just the house was destroyed. The water came up so high there, there was nothing left of the house. And she went uh, to bring her parents back to Denver. It was a sad story because her parents, um, as I found out later, never really. Um, well, they never they never acclimated to their new home. They had been in in their in their home there in Louisiana for many years. Their community was there. To see Katrina and how it wiped out entire communities was uh, devastating. You sing about it beautifully. Who's the backup singers on this track? Do you remember? Oh, I think uh, I think I think my buddy T might might have been singing on this one. There's a female voice toward the end. And I don't remember who else, Craig. I need to. Uh, I need That's to go back right. and, and listen it, to that one. It's a good song. It's a long song. It's heartfelt. And uh, the thing about Louisiana, my best guess is you love it because you go for the music festival every year. Is there more to it? Oh, of course. Well, it's not just music. It's you know, it's the the attitude of the people there. Life is for living. Celebrate every day. I mean, that's it's just a beautiful, uh, you know lifestyle that that people i think uh 
celebrate down there and and we can, and we have to mention the food and how good that is too craig and the music is amazing you, i mean it's on every street corner let the good times roll it's sort of a liberal attitude and you give it away that you're kind of a liberal commie type by using the metrics <laughs> by using the metric system in your song do you remember I how did. high the waves were oh it was in meters six meters high yeah, six meters high, and that's no exaggeration. That's what happened there. Let's let everybody give a listen. Thank you for Louisiana Goodbye, and uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you about the Alamo. You might have to read this book and see if you're going to have to uh, kiss your history goodbye. All right. I look forward to uh, to what the, the, in, the information therein. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Troubadour. Here he is, Louisiana Goodbye. Jeannie's delaying herself. Days go by, nothing seems to hurt. She don't cry. What good would it do? She said, I guess her words ring true. It's like we're living in a foreign land. We've got time, yeah, too much on our hands. Thinking back to the life we knew before. This ain't our life no more. When the lightning strikes, we take it in stride. When the house started shaking, we knew we'd survive. When the water came rushing in six meters high, we took all we had.
started shaking We knew we'd survive When the water came rushing in Six feet as high When it took all we had Louisiana, goodbye See you, law school, 1981. And now here it is, 2021. I'm coming up on 40 years. It's flown by. I keep learning. But I know things. And I'm available to be your lawyer. I have a great law firm behind me, Springer and Steinberg. We do it all. 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. Two eight zero zero. I look forward to speaking with you. Every Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Colorado time, I publish a new podcast. Get it straight right then to your smartphone. Please subscribe. Thank you. I have figured a few things out, especially about Peter Boyles. I bring him up because he is an important historical figure in this city. He still has some influence, and I think he uses it in terrible ways. I've called out his anti-Semitism before, and this week I do it again. I give you a good long segment of Peter Boyles that I heard, 7 a.m. hour midweek, in which he engaged with callers who reflect back his disdain of modern America, where he feels like people are coming to destroy America, those other people. Recall last week I pointed out how Boyles capitulated. He fought the big lie, but then his audience fought back, and he said, we've got larger issues like keeping 
the marauding hordes at bay. We have to make America great again, like it was in the 50s when he grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to what he's described as an alcoholic, racist family. Did he overcome it? I don't think so, because now, as he nears 80 himself, he is causing damage on the streets of Denver by saying that this country is threatened by these marauding hordes. Listen to this full exchange with the callers. It's got all the classic elements of right-wing scare media. We're all about to die. Get scared. React. Get guns. The caller mirrors that behavior. Yes, it's all gone. Screw progress. We're not giving in to these people. We already gave women the right to vote. We ended slavery. What more do they want? Reparations? And the conversation was all about Jack Phillips. Now, that's an interesting issue, Jack Phillips. The Christian baker who won't make a cake for gay and lesbian ceremonies, transgender. Should he have to do it? Well, should people have had to let black people come in their restaurants back in the day, hotels, public accommodations? Don't you have to treat everybody the same? Or are they making an artist create a work of art for a topic he doesn't prefer? There are good issues there, but not the way Boyles addresses it. It's all about racism. It's all about conflating the left with Nazis. And as I told you many times, I cannot stand that. I'll call it out every time. The bigotry, the anti-Semitism, the ahistoric fact. Hitler came from the right. The current threat from Trumpism is from the right. The left, they do terrible things when they go too far, including anti-Semitism, but do not say the people who are going after Jack Phillips are on the Nazi side of things. That's where Boyles gets it so far wrong, and he's just like the Nazis in castigating the so-called elites. He spent his whole show ridiculing a fine lawyer, an excellent judge named A. Bruce Smith. How do I know? He's a Denver District Court judge. He had a good reputation. He still does. Not that Boyles would know about that. Boyles castigates him as an idiot even though he confesses he's never met the man. Boyles could care less that courtrooms are run on the basis of laws written by the legislature. He wants to turn everything into a stupid history lesson. And he does make a point about history being written by the winners, as I discussed with Dave Gunders about the Alamo. You think you will hear that Alamo revisionism on talk radio? No way. They're the ones engaged in disinformation, like the big lie that grew out of Boyle's radio station and Boyle's own show. Like this bullshit Nazi talk. Wait till you hear the way this call culminates with twisted Boyle's thinking again about putting Jews in the ovens. Just despicable. I'm going to call it out every week as long as Boyle's persists in being a danger to the people on the streets of Metro Denver. Let me tell you, Peter Boyles has contempt for people of faith. He's told me that many times. 
He ridicules Christianity to me, a non-Christian. I don't go for that. I don't go for bigotry. But Boyles is contemptuous of people of faith, but he just gave in on the big lie, the biggest issue of the day. And I read to you last week about the case of Brian Gordon versus Peter Boyles, black police officer who had to sue Boyles when Boyles lied against this black police officer. So don't get your history of black Denver from Peter Boyles. He is not the right source. He's not the right source for anything about Jewish people either. Maybe he can talk about bigoted Irish people from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and leave it at that. I'll leave it at that for now. Give a listen to six minutes of right-wing hate radio broadcast to the streets of Denver, Colorado. Shame on you, Peter Boyles. I can see these people. They have reappeared many, 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 many times and will reappear again. But our country, that how I feel about our country, there's no good outcome. No other nation's done the kinds of things this nation is doing and that end up in a good place. They don't. Yeah, and, well, I don't know. You know, I'm off the res. I don't care about these freaking organizations anymore. I'm, I'm done with them. I just, but, if I had any sympathy or if I was on the fence, I don't care about the woke movement. I don't care about reparations. I don't care about anything. Man up. You know, well, we but, at one point we discovered they were wrong and we changed the laws and slavery ended and women can vote. Those are those is this is no that doing the right thing is no different than back in Jack. That's the right thing. I mean, we where there's a there's a stupid statement. It's called the wrong side of history because history is only a, a, an agreement of, of winners. But having said that, you know, think about what history we would have read had the Nazis won. This is why history's philosophy or why it's a it's it's not a science. So right. you look at this stuff and you think, what's the next thing that these people are going to want? Because they witch hunt. This is a witch hunt. And they have some useful idiot like Abrus. And I'm sure he's like sees himself as a sterling uh, outstanding judge, but he's just a useful idiot. No, because he can now go to the country club and go to the, all the right places, and he'll be, he'll be beloved by the, um, the Radalibs. This is Tom Wolfe's The Radical Chic. And this is A. Bruce fits the model. I've never met A. Bruce in my life, but I see him in two different stories we're doing this morning in Open Lines. A. Bruce would fit right in. Right. Fun in the sun, my boy. <laughs> it's like for a good time. Call A. Bruce, but they can't let Jack Phillips alone. And the question is why? Why can't they? Well, I can't believe they're going to. They, I mean, how do they tweak it every time? Doesn't matter. Think, oh, we're going to get them this time. This time we're going to get them. People are idiots. <laughs> how old I'm are you? Up, how old are you? I'm 49. That light just went on. <laughs> You know, well, no, for a while, I've yeah. listened to you. For, I always say, you know, the human condition is a crappy condition, but it's the only condition we got. Someone once said, to, to the person who feels life is a tragedy, to the person that thinks life is a comedy. Because when it's said and done, and you and I, 
you know, sitting by the fire. This stuff's funny because these people believe this. And history always wills out. And this has all happened before. And it's always ended up in a bad place. Do you think A. Bruce knows that? Don't yeah. know. Uh, you think they know it at Channel 9? No. Or maybe. Or yes. Or it doesn't matter. Or they're not that smart. I don't know. I don't have answers. I've long given up with answers. It's not there. Just, you know, it's like coming to work and point it out. <laughs> you know, go ride your motorcycle. Let it alone. <laughs> you take care of yourself, brother. Thanks, man. Take, All right. Take. We go here. This is Brenda. Brenda, you're on a radio show. Good morning. Hi, Peter. Hey. This is just my little opinion. But it's always been my belief that they don't let this man go. Because it's like that adage, if you give an inch, you give a mile. They are afraid that if they let this man keep winning, more people will stand up. I, I and then more yeah. and more and more and more. And, I think and they right. are yeah. cowards. Well, they're not. They're, they're, they're believers. They believe. This is the important yeah. thing about belief again. They believe they're right. Yeah. That is true. And stupidity breeds. And they tend to not. Oh, you, you know, I've always said that, you know, I work with a lot of people that if you open your mouth and they don't believe in you, they shout you down. Sure. I don't give a damn. Yeah. Welcome to they radio. They can shout me down all they want. No, welcome. I mean, really. Welcome to the last but, six I mean, months. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, I mean, I really do believe that, that they, they have to go after him. For whatever reason they have in their toolbox, if mm. he mm. wins, mm. then they believe that other people will say, wait a minute. You know, and I mean, this, this judge is a fool because he's basically telling me, Hey, I don't care about your your constitutional rights. That's what he's saying. Your constitutional right to a freedom of religion is wrong. No, A. Bruce is he's a PC warrior. Uh, you can yeah. I mean, we got A. Bruce on two this morning. One's the Park Hill camping, and this one. But we, I, I just t- goes to show you how hypocrite you know, no, hypocrisy no, works. It's, I mean, it's, he makes no sense. But think it through. I try and pound this home to people. When mm-hmm. when they were putting people in ovens in Germany. They believed yeah. they believed they were doing the right thing. That is true, but that is also part of um, any kind of uh, um, brainwashing no. or mass no, no, not, not any or anything no. like that. Again, slowly. This is about belief. That's why belief is dangerous. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com. LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. And that, my friends, was quite a show. Putting Jews in ovens, why does it always come back to that for Peter Boyles? We'll keep calling it out. We will 
Also try to get Julian Rubenstein back on. I think he'll come. One interview. What a book. The Holly. Read it. Buy it. Bill Buckley, thank you, my friend. Your tenacity, your willingness to tell your stories. Thank you. Thank you to the audience for being there for me every Saturday. I hope you enjoy your podcast. Tell a friend. Like it. Subscribe. It's on every podcast platform. Thank you. Have a good week. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.